1: Across this great country and around the world, this is Coast to Coast AM. My name is Rob Simone, filling in for George Norrie, and I hope all of you are having a wonderful holiday season. And tonight's show is perfectly situated for this time of year. And as we get ready to flip the calendar over, thoughts turn to where we've been and where we're going. And our first guest can speak to that directly. Linda Sherman has been practicing astrology for over 37 years, and her predictions have been proven correct. Last year, she came on the show and talked about a devastating earthquake that would uh, ruin Japan's economy. She talked about the overthrow of Mubarak and Gaddafi in Libya, and she was right. And she's going to come up in just a few moments and talk about What's going to happen in 2012? And we're going to get also into sort of a world political look, economy, and even the 2012 enigma, what she sees in the stars. And coming up after that, very special show, Jan Irvin. We're going to talk about the holy mushroom, evidence of mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity and astro-theology and shamanism. We're going to talk about... Christianity's Pagan Roots. We're going to dissect Christmas and Santa, and you'll be surprised at some of these traditions and where they come from. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. In addition to practicing astrology for over 37 years, uh, Lynn Sherman has served on the international uh, uh, clienteles. She has uh, uh, been uh, hired by corporations, financial service companies, private individuals, for her ability to look into uh, the creation of a corporation and almost treat it like an individual, because these corporations have birth dates too. Uh, she is the online uh, publisher for the Soothsayer newsletter, and she is a longtime member of the National Council of Geocosmic Research, a worldwide astrology organization. Well, let's get her on here. Linda, welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
2: Well, thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be on again.
1: Yeah, well, tell us what happened last time you were on. You uh, made some very startlingly accurate predictions.
2: Well, <clears throat> one of the predictions that I made um, that when I was on before is that 2011 would be the beginning of the second American Revolution, so that you were going to see people coming out of their coma and getting angry at their fates and no longer accepting them, and that there would be some organized protest movement. And, of course, we have the Occupy Wall Street movement, which I feel over the next several years will gain strength and cohesion and possibly form a third political party, which may displace uh, even one of the present two parties, which in many ways ha- has sold out. Both
3: <laughs> wow.
1: The, the Occupy Party? Delusion. Wow. Yeah, the Occupy Party, huh?
2: Yes, the Occupy – it'll probably have another name, but the Occupy Wall Street movement started in 2011, and uh, this was one of my predictions. Uh, I predicted that in my – uh, newsletter online uh, in February that there would be, that Japan would be hit by a devastating earthquake and tsunami and possibly uh, threaten almost to destroy their economy. At the time, I didn't know about the Fukushima nuclear plants being located uh, so close to the shore, and of course, we all know what happened in March. <clears throat> These are a couple of the of the things. I I think. That this year uh, we need. We first of all, a lot of people are very disturbed about the, of course, December twenty first, twenty twelve, end of the Mayan long count.
1: Yeah, that's happening. The economy's in flux. We're still in this recession, and yeah, Time Magazine even named the Occupy movement, the protester, as Person of the Year. Yeah. So there is occupy. something. Yeah, there is something to this idea that. It is a revolution, and uh, on one hand, I think we should be thankful that people are at least standing up in some way, shape, or form. We need more people, really, to to seize control of this democracy. But let's get into this, because 2012 is just coming up over the horizon. And I first give people a little bit of an idea of how you do it, because there's something called mundane astrology, which is anything but mundane. But give us a little insight on how this works.
2: Exactly, Rob. Mundane astrology is really... But doing an analysis of the charts of nations and giant collectives and even looking at the direction that humanity will take in in a period of time. These are the big issues that we tackle as astrologers looking at the planets and their configurations out there and how they influence the fate of nations and economies, the environment. Uh, Right now, in 2012, I foresee major, major tectonic events, earthquakes. Uh, I have been predicting those environmental disasters. On the show, I talked about, uh, and on my newsletter uh, in 2010, a major, major series of environmental disasters, and I talked about the, the June 2010, what I called the Chernobyl eclipse, because the last time... We had an eclipse to Pluto in 1986 when we uh, had this terrible Chernobyl disaster. And uh, so we had the BP oil disaster. And then after that, we had the earthquake in Japan, and we have the Fukushima nuclear plant, which is it's even worse than the Chernobyl disaster. We've got lying ahead of us tectonic events of, I think, a great degree of significance. Uh, The areas are Mexico, California, and the northwest coast of the USA, and I'm particularly concerned, by the way, about California. Again, Japan is not finished, Alaska, Chile, Iceland, and even Italy. All of these charts are being activated, and the most intense period is between April and June of 2012, in which these events, there are a number of serious, the Pluto-Uranus square is exact, and there are serious, serious eclipses uh, the uh, uh, and lunations that are activating Neptune. And there are a whole range of things that I won't go into the technical uh, reasons, but the, especially the solar eclipse of May 20th. Mm. Uh, is activating these things, so I'm really, really concerned. I've been trying to get my friends and clients who live in the San Francisco area to think of moving further inland. Uh, well, I San guarantee...
1: Francisco is due for for a big earthquake. You think it'll be Southern California or maybe Northern?
2: I think it's more uh, Northern California. Uh, but it's hard to tell. Even yeah. the seismologists themselves cannot tell where an epicenter of an earthquake is going to be. But historically, when I look at the charts of the earthquakes of 1906 and 1989, in which Neptune and Uranus were tied up in the uh, 8, 9 uh, degrees, of, 7 to 9 degrees of Capricorn, uh, Pluto is reaching that degree and is squaring Uranus at eight nine Aries in June exactly, and there's a lunar eclipse on the ascendant of the USA in June as well. So, and what does
1: that uh, mean?
2: Uh, well, that's not doesn't bode well oh. for for something going on here. We've we've had these previous earthquakes in Chile and and Haiti. And uh, 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 you know, and the Icelandic volcanoes that have erupted twice. Uh, we've had these things outside the United States that I'm very, very concerned about. That San Francisco area.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Haiti uh, experienced an awful earthquake a while back. Did you see that uh, when you were looking through the sort of uh, global uh, forecast?
2: No, I predicted that we would have a series of deadly earthquakes in that time period. I did not predict it would be haiti
3: okay um,
2: specifically
1: well this is uh you know this is foreboding uh, news. What about the economy? Where do you see that shifting because I think that's what a lot of people are really concerned about. Is it going to get worse?
2: Well, first of all, we have to realize the real facts. There's cognitive dissonance out there that would like us to believe otherwise and that we're going to recover. And this is just a recession as opposed to what it really is, which is a Great Depression. Uh, this is going to go on for, for many years. And it's about changing our society, our consciousness, our systems, our institutions. We have enormous power in the hands of banksters. The Federal Reserve forked out over 12 trillion dollars. To the banks between 2008 and 2009, it's unbelievable, and just kind of under the table. We have a system which this is what ignited the Occupy Wall Street, and they talk about where the 99% is that money has been pouring into the pockets of the top of the level what I call banksters, because most of their wealth is not about lending and, and you know a healthy economy, lending money to small businesses and to homeowners. It's about trading in the derivatives market, which are puts and calls, which are using money to place bets on stocks, commodities, uh, currencies. And uh, we, we've had absolute disaster with crashes in derivatives. You can literally just lose everything Today's derivative market, according to the Bank of International Settlements, is over $700 trillion. And those are the derivative trades that they know about, not including what we call the over-the-counter derivatives market. And this, recently MF Global crashed. And in, in my October newsletter, I predicted that toward the end of the month, beginning of November, there would be another series of, of really terrible financial scandals and that's when mf global collapsed and former uh governor of new jersey and senator corzine former head of goldman sachs was the head of mf global and he recently appeared in front of congress uh they said where did where did the 1.2 billion dollars that was in your customers accounts go everything is he says I don't know.
3: Yeah. Typical. Right.
2: And we have this. We have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the the CEO's executives are all called in now and possibly being indicted. Uh, that happened around that same time. So our system is absolutely corrupt. Most of the money is not going back into an economy to help an economy grow and, and provide jobs for people. Currently, the real unemployment figure in this country is around 22 percent. And according to government statistics published recently, half of the population of this country is at or below the poverty line.
1: Where do you see uh, unemployment going? you see it uh, rising uh, dramatically or about holding even?
2: I really – not in reality. I mean they may give you some statistics that it's not as bad as it was because a lot of people's unemployment has expired and they've almost abandoned the job search. So they do not include that. In these statistics, they only include people who are applying for unemployment. And all of these kids that are graduating from college with $100,000 loans to pay off are not able to get jobs. So, no, I think the economy is going to get much, much worse. We're not going to see ourselves coming out until around 2015. Uh, And briefly, you see, there are cycles within great cycles. There are smaller cycles. And we may see some improvement in 2015, 2016. But again, uh, 2017 through 2020 may see the bottom of this depression and may actually witness the end of the Federal Reserve as we know it. So there are, there's going to be big collapses, uh, more banking collapses, more institutions, and. With Pluto and Capricorn, the guys in charge are going to fight tooth and nail to preserve themselves. So my feeling is that the the uh, Occupy Wall Street, which by the way the mainstream media uh, is trying to minimize and trying to oh this is you know they have people on that say the occupiers are are just hippies, you know old hippies or what or drunks off the street or whatever this. Movement is filled with highly educated, informed, committed core of people who know what they're talking about and know why they're there.
3: Right. Uh,
1: but those aren't well, the ones necessarily that get the camera put on them or. Well, that every, would make every yeah.
2: protest movement. And by the way, the Occupy movement has gone all over the world.
1: Yeah. <laughs> to <Sure>. Rome. <laughs> to well, because of social networking, social media, I mean, the, these things are just being connected like spider webs. It's extraordinary how these things it can be set up.
2: Oh, absolutely, Rob. And it's interesting because it started in Tunisia and Egypt, and it got on over here. The Egyptians who overthrew Mubarak, I mean, these young people used electronic media to connect with each other. And something that's very, very interesting, I find as an astrologer, because I think by the time we get into the 2020s, we're going to have our democracy back, and we're going to understand what it really means to have a democracy uh, and what is happening now uh, are the, uh, the precursors to that, uh, taking our democracy back and completely reforming our society for, by and for the people, which is what, uh, what was promised by Thomas Jefferson and our forebearers. Yeah. I believe that eventually has a good chance of being the end result. But what's unique about this is there isn't a singular charismatic leader at the head of this. As there wasn't in Egypt, the, it, it was group oriented. It was much, it, this is a much more dramatic thing that has to do with groups of people meeting, debating, discussing, and then form forming their views. One one of the big things that the Occupy movement is taking up is an amendment to the Constitution, taking all private money out of all political campaigns.
3: Mm, wow! And I
2: say hallelujah to that.
3: Can one. you imagine?
1: <laughs>
2: They're all bought and sold on both sides of
1: the aisle. Well, you know, we need reform. We need campaign finance reform. We need a lot of reform. And you're right. I mean, this whole thing started in the Middle East with uh, Tunisia, with a guy uh, whose fruit stand was taken away from him. You're absolutely right. And he was so upset because he couldn't make a living. He set himself on fire. And that's what started this whole thing, this whole domino effect. And it's kind of a triumph of the human spirit to suggest that, you know, a strong... Uh, Will can overcome, you know, almost any obstacle, right?
2: Absolutely. And, Rob, I'm so glad that you brought up this this man who set himself on fire out of desperation because, you know, we don't have to set ourselves on fire. But one of the things we need to remember during these very difficult and dark times is that every single one of us counts – and that we can do a lot more than frequently we think we can do. We get overwhelmed in our lives thinking, well, the plutocracy, as I'm fond of calling it, being an astrologer named after Pluto, Hmm. these, these people in power who are crushing everybody else so they can narcissistically and selfishly hold on to all of their excesses. Uh, and they don't care what they do to anybody else. They have no notion of the greater good. But there are so many people out there, many of them, by the way, listen to this show, because so many people have contacted me after I've been on.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, and I, and the hearts and souls are so committed to the greater good. And they say, what can I do? Yeah. And I say to people, relocalize. Uh, take your money out of the big banks that the banksters are running and putting it into small, local, solvent credit unions and banks. Uh, subsidize, get together as a community. Grow your food locally and organically. Uh, and that leads me, by the way, into, uh, as I said, we the, the crises that we're going to face um that lie ahead and and i do want to make one last i do not think the economy is going to get better i also think commodities are going to go down
3: okay
1: i want to ask you about that tell me about oil because this is something that affects people you know on a daily basis do you see any large fluctuations or anything significant
2: yes well of course there's always fluctuations but my take is that commodities will go down in 2012 except for right now, gold and silver are in a short term bear market. They're selling off way, way off. Every day you turn it on, it's sold off another 54 points or, or whatever. Because gold and silver rose, especially gold. And I have been a strong recommender of gold uh, uh, because of the fluctuations, the instabilities all over the world, connected with currencies. Already Japan and China have decided to trade in their own currencies. They made this decision the other day. The the dollar, as the global currency will is and will lose its status, it temporarily strengthened and people got out of, they, they went into cash, they went into the dollar because of the collapse of so many of the European nations. Uh, Europe's collapse, the European banks, and that's, Collapse isn't over, and they're not going to be able to fix it, by the way. Uh, so people you hear on the news, oh, everything's going to get better because Europe is fixing their problems. Well, they're not. And the European Union may not stay a union, and the euro dollar uh, may not th- stay there either. Yeah,
1: they're having their own problems. I mean, look at they're Greece. They're having and... their
2: own problems, yeah. and so people in a knee-jerk way – Got back into the dollar, sold a lot of their gold and silver positions, and got into the dollar uh, wanting to be in a cash position. Yep. And
1: we'll hold it right there because we're just coming up on the break here. And when we get back, I want to talk to you more about this, and of course, 2012. Uh, we're talking with Linda Sherman. Her website is hooked up right now at coasttocoastam.com. My name is Rob Simone. Stay tuned. We're coming right back. Yes, you are back in Coast to Coast AM, and I'm filling in on the 5th of January as well. We'll be talking with Gerald Salente, also about future trends. He is director of the Trends Research Institute. He's been featured on Oprah, CNN, uh, The O'Reilly Report, and many other uh, programs, and he is uncanny at his uh, ability to discuss trends, and I think that will be a, a really uh, amazing show for the beginning of the year. And also filling in on the 27th, guest to be determined. Now, if you're having trouble jumping around all these different shows, you should go and get a subscription to Coast Insider. Why? Because you can download all these shows. You can go back and get any show from from the past that's up there. You can listen to it while you drive, which is great for here in Los Angeles because you're always sitting in the car. And while I love listening to Journey songs and old Led Zeppelin tunes, I've heard them so many times, I thought to myself, why don't I put this time To good use. So check it out. It's Coast Insider. For less than 30 bucks, you can enjoy all the shows anytime you want for six months. Uh, It will really make a big difference. We're talking with uh, Linda Sherman, and we're going to get into this 2012 phenomenon right after this. Welcome back. We're talking with uh, Linda Sherman. Her website, by the way, is linked up at uh, coasttocoastam.com. That's where you can also. Get more information about becoming a Coast Insider and having uh, access to all of these shows uh, at your fingertips. And Linda, before the break, we were, of course, talking about commodities and uh, gold and oil, things like that. Now, did you, ha- did you see anything specifically for oil where it would be like a game changer or do you just see more of the normal fluctuations?
2: Well, I think they're <clears throat> it always fluctuates. Commodities always fluctuate and there will be ups and downs, but I think overall – the 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 price of oil will be going down
3: oh. uh,
2: in, in next year. Um, one of the things I want to point out is I wrote a book called "What Next: A Survival Guide to the 21st Century," in which many of these predictions, many of which have already occurred, it was published in June of 2007, uh, have have absolutely occurred that were in the book at that time, and there are more predictions ahead in. Of course. In that book. Now, the um, the price of commodities, as I said, I think oil, uh, grains, a lot of things like this are going to be going down for a while. The exception ultimately is I advise people to hold on to their gold and silver because this is, in a sense, especially possibly going to be coming back in the fall of the year uh, between the, the period between October and December of 2012. I see uh, uh, an upswing in in the metals. And I'm not talking about the stocks, which are very, very risky to be in, the mining stocks. Okay. Uh, and uh, But other commodities in general, I think, are going to take a downturn, and they're going to affect these nations that are commodities economies. Mm. Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, China, Canada, Brazil – um, uh, are all being affected here. Canada, as you know, is is a strong commodities economy. Um, so I, I wanted to say that the economy really does not look favorable for most people next year. I think the realities are going to be setting in and these temporary highs in the stock market will probably be a thing of the past.
1: (laughs) Well, what about China? They certainly are a force. And is there any significant change in China's power or anything that has to do uh, with the economy that might affect Americans?
2: Yes, now it's interesting about China because the one thing that China really has over us is they don't have debt. (laughs) And they also have invested in a lot of commodities around the world. What is not well understood, their chart is getting hit heavily in 2012, so heavily that I am predicting in the spring of 2012 something similar to the Tiananmen Square protest. China is going to get into the protest movement as well, Uh, 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 because there is a return of Jupiter that was in Gemini in 1989, and the Uranus-Pluto is hitting their sun very, very heavily. Now, what a lot of people don't – as strong as they are economically at this present time, because they're not saddled with debt and they made a lot of investments around the world, is we don't realize the environmental catastrophes that have been visited upon this nation. Because of of global warming, climate change, the Himalayan glaciers have melted, which has supplied – Uh, water to the Yellow and Yangtze rivers for thousands of years. They're drying up, and they're so filled with factory pollution, and the air is so filled with air pollution because there are no environmental laws in China, and the outsourcing of manufacturing there for people who will work for 36 cents an hour in very bad contaminated conditions are making people sick. The population is getting more and more unhealthy, And and because of this, so China has, which leads me to the next prediction, Neptune is going into Pisces in February of 2012 and will be there through March of 2025. And I am predicting a worldwide water crisis, that they're going, as the oceans rise, salt water is encroaching and fresh water is drying up. All the fresh water places throughout the world are decreasing in volume. China has made a deal with the Canadians with Lake Huron and the great one of the Great Lakes uh, to export to them thousands and thousands of gallons of water, fresh water. And we have to realize that the United States, North America, and Canada has the Great Lakes and the Finger Lakes. We have the largest supply of fresh inland water in the world and we can't allow it to be threatened by fracking for gas or digging for oil or any of these things that are going on this yeah massive... they,
1: they were left over from the last ice age they just
2: yes they were yeah. and they're precious yeah. precious commodities because we're going to enter a crisis many places aren't going to be, be and uh, they're going to become uninhabitable island nations Will be underwater, suffering catastrophes, and the the clean water is what I'm talking about. Drinking water, potable right, water, right. is becoming more and more scarce. And we're really this is something. Now, I, I also quickly want to say something that I think is very important that relates to all of this because the fossil fuel economy, which is 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 behind. I know some people do not believe this, but the science to me behind it is almost irrefutable we have to change over to some other form of energy and and this is where i have some very good news is that it's happening oh great and i made a prediction about this that it would uh it under the uranus pluto square which is in many ways catastrophic to economies and to tectonic events uh that this, the last time Uranus squared Pluto was 1933, the Germans split the atom. And what is happening now is uh, that something like this is going on. Uh, uh, there's America's National Ignition Facility uh, is lining up and cooperating with a, a company in the United Kingdom called Rutherford. Appleton Laboratory, and they have set up a system of lasers. Uh, I believe here I have the facts here. It's like 192 lasers uh, are focused and fire a 500 kilowatt of flash at a drop of hydrogen atoms, just one millimeter across, and they have created hydrogen fusion. They have released more energy than we need to power the world. And this is not just experimental anymore. This is this has been done over and over again, and now they're working on setting up infrastructures of these uh, lasers shooting particles at at, at uh, hydrogen pellets to be the new electricity for the whole world. And it has almost no downside. Well, we have we have
1: a lot of hydrogen, and uh, isn't yeah, isn't Iceland?
2: It's plentiful yeah. and. This is one of the many solutions, I think, by the time we get into the 2020s. We're going to have an entirely new infrastructure, and we will be mostly off of all fossil fuels. Well, isn't
1: Iceland uh, sort of shifting their economy to be the main producer of hydrogen?
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. Iceland is on board with with this, very much so, yes. Well, But Iceland is already independent. They sit on the 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 um, they're they're sitting on one one long volcano there. The <laughs> yeah. volcano. So they have uh geothermal yep. is their primary uh, solar and geothermal yep. so they're almost totally independent. Well,
1: Sweden is the same way. A friend of mine who uh, who lives there says that, you know, his house is is heated by geothermal, and it doesn't take much, just a few degrees difference in temperature. And most of the houses are set up that way. They they, pair, they pay nothing for
3: heat, basically.
2: You know, I have a, a, a chapter in my book that is written by a solar architect who explains that with different types of construction for our buildings and our houses called passive solar, a house within a house, and south-facing windows, solar-collecting walls, landscaping, that we can, we now have the technology to build houses that keep a constant 57 to 60 degrees inside year-round. We need really no central heat or anything. This is already being done. These are going up where you said Sweden, Norway, Denmark,
3: Germany, Finland. Germany, absolutely.
2: They're going up in Canada and in Germany, all of these places, and there's a special type of composite material that looks like cement that is so well insulated. If you build a house with that, you will not need central heat. We, we have constructed buildings and houses like there's no tomorrow waste. Oh, yeah. absolutely wastefully. If we just change our architecture and our building practices, we can save probably at least half of the fuel, uh, the oil and the gas that we
1: need to use. It's, it's really true. We lead the, uh, the world in so many things. But when it comes to this different kind of thinking, there's so many other countries. Like when I lived in Nepal, they, there was no real electricity They didn't have water heaters. What they did was they painted their water pipes black. They ran them up to the roof. They put them in a little window that was also painted black, and you could take a hot shower at 11 a.m. with absolutely no water here, just using
2: black is a solar collector.
1: It's it's basically just warmed up by the sun, and this is Nepal. And every house, every hotel had that same system. They didn't pay a dime for it. So there's all kinds of simple things that just just elude the American psyche. Why is that, Linda?
2: so right, Rob, I so agree with what you're saying what is
1: it what is it about our collective consciousness that makes us so uh, resistant to some of these changes that are readily available what what is that
2: I honestly think that there's been a betrayal on so many different levels for the past thirty or forty years in this country a betrayal of uh, the corporate world of the people of the government uh, that was supposed to be of the people. And most of all, this is why I love this show, Coast to Coast, because you hear people get on and give their opinions and, and stand in their truths on this show Because most of the television and the mainstream corporate-owned media is just a uh, – everything is taken off. It's
3: It's
1: a a sounding chamber. It's a repeating, echoing sounding chamber.
2: It's a brainwashing institution, and people have been dumbed down and brainwashed. And they wake up one day, and they realize they're going to lose their house. They realize they've lost their credit. They realize that they've been laid off from their job, and, and, and they saw it happen to their neighbors, but they didn't pay that much attention. And now that it's happened to them, they say, my God, what happened to me? Yeah. It, it's just there has been a composite of, uh, uh, of decisions made by people in positions of power on various levels that that have been very much a betrayal and i'm a great believer in the press i'm a great believer in media and journalism and truth reporting and uh this this has been betrayed in in the commercial
3: oh i agree well
1: let's let's get into this other fascinating sort of component we're coming into 2012 and a lot of people say wow i can't believe it's finally here tell me about your take on the ending of the grand cycle of the mayan calendar how does yeah. that factor into some of your predictions, and will we see some significant events, e- either uh, metaphysically or uh, earthquakes or tectonic or otherwise?
2: Well, I do believe it is going to be, uh, not necessarily because it's the end of the Mayan long count, but because of the, the astrological patterns, the planetary patterns, it's going to be a really tough year. Uh, for many, many people in the economy, but these tectonic events are, are, as I talked about earlier, I think are very, very significant. Uh, Look what happened to Japan recently. I mean, it's really, uh, these are are very, very serious. And it's interesting because many of these tectonic events probably will take place in the area where the Mayans originally had their empire, like Mexico, Guatemala, in Central and South America. Where the Mayans populated very heavily, I think we need to see that their long count, their their big age started. They say on August eleventh, thirty one fourteen B.C., and that the end of it uh, it, it is December twenty first of twenty twelve, which is what we talk about now. Roughly, that is equivalent to when the earliest civilizations started to develop. They started to change from just tribal. Societies into building buildings and pyramids and uh, the, the Babylonians the egyptians the, the very earliest ancient civilizations as we know it, we call them the foundation for the civilization that we have now, uh, so that 's when they sort of began and uh, and so this is is a significant time it 's interesting that the uh, rebellions that have developed recently started in the Middle East. Hmm. In Tunisia and Egypt, Libya, Syria, all these nations where where we call the cradle of civilization began, and uh, I find that very significant. I think that my interpretation. Everybody has an interpretation of this, and uh, my interpretation is we are at the end of a great grand cycle, and this, but there is a new manifestation of human life coming ahead and the old it doesn't die easily it doesn't die painlessly
1: are we seeing Uh, the emergence of perhaps a new global consciousness
2: yes i think we've got to see the difference between now and say the 2020s when i think it's going to be more evident a lot of people are just going to be interested in survival on, on, you know, do I get through day to day? You know, am I going to survive this? Uh, there's going to be a lot of rebellion, a lot of discontent. I'm concerned because our nation is armed to the hilt. One of the most prosperous business in businesses in this nation is guns, and people are armed, and they're going to get scared. There's going to be some real downside to this, which always has been during times like this. My feeling is there are also going to be pockets of people who relocalize, get together, hold hands, come up with ideas and solutions to the problems. And those are the people that will be what I call the gestation of the new consciousness of a human race that can live in concert with the earth and in cooperation with each other, a spiritually and psychologically elevated species.
1: Extraordinary. Well, this is something to look forward to, and I'm sure we'll all get through it if we hold on to each other. And uh, your newsletter, Soothsayer, where can people go to get more information about that and
3: your work?
2: Yes, you just go into the net. It's S-O-O-T-H-E-S-A-Y-E-R dot com. And it's open to everybody. I have a lot of people email me, well, you put me on your mailing list. <laughs> it's right there, free to the public. A new newsletter goes up on my website at that address the first of every month. So January 1st, I will have a whole list of my predictions for this year. And also you can buy my book, What Next?, uh, on the site, or you can buy it on Google Books now or Amazon.com.
1: Fantastic. Linda, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your work and predictions for the coming year, 2012.
2: Well, thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure.
1: Absolutely my pleasure. And there's a lot of food for thought there. And I have to say, I think uh, she is right on the money about quite a bit of the unrest that's happening. I mean, what did Gore Vidal call this country, United States of Amnesia? Well, I think it's time that we all woke up and sort of remembering who we are, what we are, and what we can do, and everything else. And I'm sure that will make a big difference. Well, coming up. After the break we 're to bring on our next guest Jan irvin we 're going to talk about the Gnostic texts. He is a researcher, someone who has written several books. One of them is called "The Holy Mushroom: Evidence of Mushrooms in judeo christianity and wait till you hear what we have to say about the Garden of Eden and so much more that you, if you look at a certain way, you can't help but to think there was some kind of symbolism that may have gotten lost over the years. We're also going to talk about astro-theology and shamanism. All of that coming up right after the break. This is Coast to Coast AM.
3: Stay tuned. Yes, welcome back
1: to Coast to Coast AM. Well, coming right up, we're going to turn our attention to the evidence of mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity with Jan Irvin. He is someone who has gone through the vast corridors of history and has found different clues and, and symbology that tells a different story. You're going to be really surprised how much sense all of this makes when you look at it from a different point of view. His website is linked up right now at coasttocoastam.com. Stay tuned. Our next guest will go through some of the evidence that he's collected to suggest how mind-altering substances played a part in the development of Judaism and Christianity. He's the author of the book, The Holy Mushroom, Evidence of Mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity and Astro-Theology and Shamanism, Christianity's Pagan roots. Jan Irvin. thank you for w- w- coming to Coast to Coast AM. Welcome.
4: Rob, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely a pleasure. And I think it's really a good timing that we're talking about this so close to Christmas. How did you first get involved in the Gnostic text? Was, were you always someone who were, was seeking out an alternative view to history and archaeology?
4: Well, you know, I originally started researching the history of shamanism and religions back in my early 20s, probably, oh, about 18, 19 years ago. And I had worked with Jack Hare in the California Hemp Initiative. And, and this type of research was something that Jack was uh, interested in at that time. And he had mentioned to me some things about the possibility that Judeo-Christian, uh, early Judeo-Christians had used mind-altering substances and things like that. And at the time, before I had really looked into it, I I thought that the entire idea seemed pretty absurd, and I, I remember at the time really just dismissing it. But uh, Jack was very persistent with me, and he insisted that I read this book by the name of the sacred mushroom in the cross by a guy named john allegro and i remember sitting down at 22 or 23 years old and reading that book and just being completely mind blown and it's you know and i knew that there was a lot of uh attacks out there in the press and and in academia against this guy's work and so at the time i set out uh, researching his work and checking his citations and things like that and over the years I accumulated a significant amount of, of research and images and text and things like that to support his work.
1: Hmm. Well, the John Allegro you speak of, he was involved in some of the uh, early interpretations of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right?
4: Exactly. In fact, uh, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, and in 1953 they were putting a team together and they went to Oxford uh, to ask Oxford to recommend somebody who could help them translate the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Oxford recommended John Allegro, who was working on his doctorate degree there at the time in Ori- Oriental uh, languages, which uh, the Middle Eastern region-, region is considered part of Asia. So it falls under Oriental languages there. OK. So, you know, he was a, he was basically an expert in Semitic languages. But uh, so in 1953, they put this team together, and he <clears throat> right away started to see correlations that made him question the the his his Judeo-Christian beliefs. And in 1956, he went on the BBC radio saying that there was evidence that uh, a figure called the Teacher of Righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls paralleled with many aspects of the story of Jesus Christ, and immediately. The rest of the Scrolls team separated themselves from him. And it pretty much went on like that uh, from then on. And uh, from there until 1968 and 1968, he was the first one to publish anything on the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, Allegro was really the only one that put anything out on the Scrolls for the first uh, 15 or 20 years after their discovery. And the rest of the team didn't publish anything until 1997. So we're talking. 50 years after they were originally discovered.
1: So John came up through uh, normal uh, academia, and do you think it was during his uh, work in, uh, in the field that he started seeing these different clues uh, for the, uh, the use of these uh, mind-altering substances, and that's where he uh, came to uh, put together the material for his book?
4: Well, I think originally he read the works of uh, another British scholar, Robert Graves, who had published a number of books at the time, He'd also come across the work of uh, Professor John Ramsbottom at London Botanical Museum, who had argued in a book, uh, Mushrooms and Toadstools, that the, the uh, story of Adam and Eve in the tree with the tree of knowledge was, in fact, a story about mushrooms. And this guy presented an image which had been presented in 1911 or 1912 in a, a French mycological journal. But uh, he presented this image again and argued that it was, in fact, the mushroom. And Allegro saw this, and he had also seen Robert Graves talk about the mushroom. So he, uh, at that point, really began investigating Judeo-Christianity to see if uh, there were any correlations there. Now, in 1967, before Allegro published his first book in this specific area in 1970, which was The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, in 1967, a guy by the name of Gordon Wasson, who is a banker who also worked as chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, et cetera, came out and said in a, in a book called Soma that the Rig Vedas were based on the Amanita Muscaria mushroom. So Allegro, with his background in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Semitic languages, ancient, uh, mm-hmm. ancient religions and the like, he thought that... Uh, Judeo-Christianity couldn't be any different. So he set out to find this uh, evidence, and he published his work, The Sacred Mushroom of the Cross, in 1970. Now, in that book, he really focused on linguistic evidence. And since then, uh, we've focused a lot on iconographic evidence and textual evidence. Uh, Myself and a number of other researchers, including a couple of professors, one at Boston University, we published dozens of new images that weren't available when Allegra was around. And we've also since published the first ancient primary text that specifically discussed the holy mushroom. Like my book, uh, The Holy Mushroom, is titled after this text that we discovered called The the Epistle to the Renegade Bishops, wherein they discuss specifically the quote-unquote holy mushroom. Okay, I
1: want to talk about that. Now, of course, uh, Gordon uh, Wasson, who you just uh, just mentioned, uh, wasn't he vice president for J.P. Morgan?
4: Well, yeah, he was vice president of public relations for J.P. Morgan Bank. Yeah. And uh, he worked with uh, – He well, he was close friends with a guy by the name of Edward Bernays who wrote a book in 1928 called Propaganda that was about – really about the elite using uh, propaganda to control the masses. And so uh, Gordon Wasson, he was the vice president – for J.P. Morgan Bank in charge of public relations or PR, and this type of spin. So naturally, he would be yep. friends with the founder of the field, right? But <laughs> Watson, Watson also uh, co-authored the Stock Exchange Act, the Securities Exchange Act. He was uh, he was the chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was all of these other different characters. But yeah. he was Sold to the public as this very soft uh, character who was really, uh, you know, just a happenstance to fall onto this mushroom story when he and his wife were on their honeymoon in New York, and and she rushed off into the woods to pick some mushrooms, and he thought for sure he would be a widower and uh, this sort of stuff. And this is the legend that the world has been sold about this man. And, you know, many of your listeners may not be familiar with him, but in the mycology world, this guy is completely famous. He is the god, uh, basically – of ethnomycology and ethnobotany, and he's considered the founder of the field, and I've found a lot of evidence that makes that that claim questionable.
1: Right. We're going to get into that, but let's first sort of paint a picture here. Uh, If people think back thousands of years ago, even hundreds of thousands of years ago, there were all kinds of plants and all kinds of fungus just naturally growing that produce significant hallucinatory and and mind-altering effects. And so... Back then, it's easy to understand that that experience could be interpreted as religious. And
3: your
4: books... Exactly. You're You're right. Let me just interrupt you, Rob, and just say real quick that you're exactly on target right there. But not only that, but Johns Hopkins University, Professor uh, Roland Griffiths there, has done research to show that magic mushrooms do in fact cause... a a religious experience that's indistinguishable from those written about in the ancient religious texts.
1: Fascinating. Well, uh, I was going to get into the beginning of the book where you talk about Adam and Eve. I think it's a great place to start because there's a lot of art in the medieval, the ancient world that shows this, but it really is, is a focal point.
4: Well, sure, and in fact, if people go to the Coast to Coast AM website, if they go to the image section that is up there for this interview on the second page uh, down towards the bottom, which is image number 11 uh, at the very bottom of that page is the plain corot fresco from 1291 France, which depicts Adam and, Eve on, Adam and Eve on either side of the mushroom tree in a Christian chapel there in France. And it was hotly debated for you know for decades whether or not this image really showed mushrooms but we've since found many dozens of images in fact between professor john rush and myself we probably have about 2500 to 3000 images total showing the mushrooms like this in christian art yep
1: yeah. and in the beginning of the book you you have a lot of correspondence going back between gordon wasson and john allegro Oh,
4: you're talking about uh, my Holy Mushroom
3: book.
1: Yeah, you you, you focus on the Adam and Eve symbology and how in in a lot of uh, depictions of this, uh, there is what seems to be a mushroom and not a tree of knowledge.
4: Right, exactly. And in fact, we think that uh, the, and and there are many levels to the mystery, there can be often as many as seven or ten different interpretations for each symbol, Uh, but the we think that the mushroom in many respects is the tree of knowledge. Of course, uh, there are other levels that uh, Kabbalists would point out, and we could also point out that even the mushroom, it can be seen as the fruit in the Kabbalic tree of knowledge as well. And uh, But the tree of knowledge and the fruit of knowledge is something that plays out in, in nearly every ancient mythology, not just Judeo-Christian mythology. We have uh, very similar myth uh, myths in and say for instance, the Bwiti tribe in Africa or in Japanese traditions and things like that so uh, uh, even um, you know we have the the story of Soma in the Rig Vedas, which is this this plant or this this fruit that brings uh, spiritual enlightenment and it 's long been argued uh, really today, soma is no longer argued. If it was an entheogen or a psychedelic, it's rather argued which psychedelic substance that it was.
1: And there's a great picture here. Uh, if you go to coasttocoastam.com and go to the images uh, for tonight's show, there's a slide about the, uh, the fresco in France that has really been uh, the center of some, of, uh, uh, some a disagreement between uh, mainstream archaeology uh, and people with a different point of view.
4: Right, and when you get into the the arguments on each side of this, and we really got in and analyzed the arguments, and the those what's interesting is that the the art historians argued that mycologists don't read art history books, right? But then later on, the they admitted that they don't read mycology books either. And uh, in I mean, fact, on the front on the front cover of my book, *The Holy Mushroom* is an image from uh, mont du Perigord, France, that depicts Jesus as a mushroom riding on the back of St. Christopher. And we actually sent this image to a mycologist who was able to identify the specific mushroom that is depicted there. And not only was he able to identify it, but it's a mushroom that's found commonly growing right outside that chapel.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at this photograph that's on the website, it, is, it looks to me clearly... Like a mushroom. If you would ask me to identify that even before I did the show, I probably would have said the same thing.
4: Sure, and uh, you know they they make all kinds of twists to make it look like different time, types of pine trees and things like that. But what they uh, forget to admit is that a, a pine tree is the host for this type of mushroom.
1: And going through your book, more and more images just spill out, and it's astonishing how many mushrooms have been painted uh, in uh, conjunction. Uh, with Jesus, uh, you know, with the the Garden of Eden. Uh, When, does this trend focus on a particular area, or is this scattered throughout uh, the Eastern and Western world?
4: Well, that's a very good question. If you, are you talking specifically Judeo-Christianity? That's one question, or uh, it would be the answer to your question on a global basis is that there are very few cultures and religions that we don't find psychoactive substances in use at some point during their religious genesis for judeo-christianity we find the history of mushrooms from deep in siberia all the way to the british isles and in my in both of my books i've published images from england from the canterbury anglo cattle and psalter that very clearly depicts many many images of mushrooms and even mushrooms inside of the mushrooms. And uh, in the the canterbury psalter it really has some fascinating information in there uh that uh you know adam and eve is is in that one it shows one image of jesus as the lord of magical plants uh he's uh depicted in 12 panes that's the story of genesis but in the top right pane uh jesus or lord is is standing over four very distinct mushrooms and uh When we think of ancient shamanic cultures around the world, these traditions, uh, everywhere you look, these traditions are found to be based on these plant substances, whether it's in South America, we think of ayahuasca and San Pedro cactus, or in Mexico with, uh, you know, with uh, psilocybe mushrooms, or um, uh, aliliokwai, which is morning glories, and many other substances that they use there, and the Ouija tribe up in the Great Lakes area that uses Amanita muscaria mushrooms, and then we go into Europe where they use D- Datura and Belladonna and Mandrake and these things, and uh, then down into the Middle East where we find a history uh, not only in this text that I published, but we can find in the, uh, in the uh, again, in the Cabal, in the book of Zohar, discuss- discussion of red mushrooms are are found there. There's a a Muslim text, where, which is debated currently, if it's talking about uh, truffles or mushrooms. Uh, but uh, there's a text in the Muslim Mishkat that also discusses uh, mushrooms being used for for sight, and uh, it, whether or not it's spiritual or physical sight is is being debated by scholars right now. So uh, it's not a, really a question of if these
3: substances
4: are used as the foundation. Of many of the religions. It's, it's really just getting in there and looking at this information with an open mind. Now, uh, uh, speaking of which, John Allegro, he really had his career destroyed when he went public with this information in 1970. And it took, if you can believe this, Rob, until this year, until uh, it was either uh, the last week of January, the first week of February 2011. When Boston University, uh, Professor Carl Ruck there taught the very first class ever using the sacred mushroom and the cross this year. So uh, uh, 41 years since the book was published.
1: Wow. Well, progress uh, happens slowly. They say uh, a new paradigm happens one funeral at a time. And
3: sometimes (laughs) sometimes
1: you you just have to wait that long. But um, well, let me just ask you, because I'm I'm just curious about this. Have you found evidence of uh, these frescoes or these paintings of mushrooms showing specific kind of mushrooms that are not uh, in that don't grow in that area from which they were made?
4: Well, you know, and a lot of people, that's interesting that you would mention that. A lot of people would say, well, Amanitas are not found in the Middle East area, such as around Israel and Jordan, where uh, we claim that a lot of these things were found. But, in fact, Robert Graves reported in 1952 or 56 that he reported seeing them there. But one thing that many people forget is that, uh, like, the cedars of Lebanon uh, way back in the day was this massive forest that would have been an absolute excellent host to these mushrooms, and that forest is is pretty much entirely gone today. Uh, but in uh, Hindu tradition, it, what's interesting is in many areas, it is suggested that the mushroom must be uh, purchased from someone outside or stolen from someone outside. Uh, so in, in many of these practices, it is taboo for them to acquire these substances within their own community, and they go out and they get it from some trader or they steal it from yeah. somebody. Well,
1: you know what? And- A lot of that happens today in much the same way with these same kind of substances. Uh, We're talking with Jan Irvin. We're exploring the evidence of mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity and the pagan roots of Christianity. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM. We are back talking about a different way to decode the history of some of the great religions and the, the icons and the imagery that goes along with them, they start to tell a different story when you look at it from a different perspective. I mean, it makes sense in a way, because you, know, you take the, the concept, the metaphor of a mushroom and all the spores going out and floating around. I mean, it, it's a very close parallel to the idea of religion and how it spreads and how little messages fly on the wind and they turn to grow other. People and churches and faiths. It's, its a strong symbolism there. We're talking with uh, Jan Irwin, uh, and we're going through this uh, uh, very interesting subject. Now, some of the images that we're talking about are linked up right now at coasttocoastam.com. You can see some of these different plates and some of these different examples of the artwork. And I didn't mention before, but you know, there's a new way to listen to Coast to Coast AM on your iPhone, on your iPad. Android phones, it's all possible if you are a Coast Insider. Go uh, to the website, take a look, and see how easy it is just to hear everything that you want whenever you want it. It's all about making it easier for you. We're coming back with Jan Irvin right after this. We're back. And just before the break, uh, Jan, Let's just finish that thought because I think that was uh, really interesting. We were talking about these different uh, uh, frescoes and paintings showing Jesus as a mushroom or mushrooms involved and in, uh, with the with the Virgin Mary or Garden of Eden and I was just wondering if there was anything that uh, that you had found that suggested they were sh- they were depicting mushrooms that weren't even native to the area.
4: That they were depicting mushrooms not native to a specific
1: region. Um or to the region where this art was made?
4: Well, you know, I would say that, you know, there is a lot of copying in the artwork, but what's interesting is often, I, more often than not, it seems that much of the artwork gets adopted to substances that do tend to be available in the local vicinity. Okay. And, you know, there are some exceptions to the rule, but, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting question. Uh, very rarely would I say that I have found iconography of images not found in the local vicinity.
1: Okay, because there is that temple in India that depicts corn, and of course at the time that, that was made, they should have no idea uh, about corn. And i was just wondering if there was any crossover like that.
4: Uh no I'd have to see the image of that as well sure. you know and sure. I know that I know that corn is something that has been uh, uh developed by humankind there's what 400 or 500 different types of corn that have been developed uh, by indigenous cultures alone so Okay um, well, go yeah, I'd have to look at that and I yeah. do know that there was a lot of trade uh, you know pan pacific trade happening uh, a couple of thousand years ago, there's been evidence in archaeological finds that has shown that there was trade between India and the New World. So, I'm not sure that uh, I would be against them possibly having something like corn or depicting sure. it somewhere like that.
1: Yeah. Well, let's let's look at the the big picture for a minute. We're seeing uh, this uh, concept being woven into a lot of different cultures. Do you think that there was some sort of lost society? that held the knowledge specific to the mushroom or psychoactive substances?
4: I personally don't think that. I know that some do, but what I think happened, and, and, you know, I really do think that the cradle of civilization is India. And if you go back far enough, pretty much just about every philosophy out there can be traced uh, at at some point at its core level into India. Buckminster Fuller was famous for putting forward – ideas showing that, uh, India is the, uh, really the cradle of civilization. Um, so, uh, you know, now and I've, I've, tra- I've lost my train of thought on that. So remind me what,
1: well, yeah, I was just talking about if, was there along with this knowledge, if there was this, uh, influence oh, of yeah. mushroom you know, and, in judeo-christianity right. was there also a, a society Is there a cradle or a hierarchy or some sort of collective lost religion or lost keepers of this that really were the ones that were responsible for holding on to this uh, almost forgotten legacy?
4: Well, you know, you could say that there were many different religions that carried this, but you know, and I, this is something that's a question that I've thought about for a good 10 or 15 years, and I don't really think that there's evidence of a central core religion that ignited it all, except out of India. But, you know, what there is, is you have some core themes. You have archaeoastronomy, which is paying attention to the sun and the moon and the stars so that you can tell time, so that you know when to plant, when to harvest, when to store your food, so that you don't die. You also have the uh, story of religious experience that is found in the local vicinity. And each of these cultures were hunter-gatherers. They would be looking for things that they could consume uh, for food. And when they came across medicinal substances, uh, including uh, poisonous for warfare and often poison is just the level or the amount of a plant that you use versus uh, it being used for healing and then, uh, you know, for that same plant possibly being used for religious experience. So um, what you have is a foundation sort of globally of things that would automatically lead a species like humans to sort of automatically discover and go with those things. If you didn't know when to plant your food, you died. Uh, There was the shaman and uh, religious aspects. You know, people didn't have televisions and radios and things like that to dis- distract them at night. They would meditate, go into caves, take psychoactive substance and- substances and things like that. So, I'm not really one to believe in a theory of a uh, of a global ancient uh, religion, so to speak. There is evidence that there was a a global sort of mushroom cult, but did it have a, a central figurehead or a central uh, a religious center or anything like that? I don't think so. I think that it's just that people, wherever they were, when they walked behind cattle and cows are, are religious, for instance, in India, you walk behind a cow, you're going to eventually discover uh, mushroom, mushrooms like Pilosopi, uh, uh cubensis which grow in dung and happen to uh, be able to put you in a very spiritual, religious uh, state. So I think this is really more along the lines of what took place than a a central-like control center.
1: Okay. Well, we just uh, came off of uh, Christmas, and we're entering into New Year. Talk to us about uh, some of the alternative uh, uh, creations of uh, St. Nicholas in the Christmas tradition.
4: Well, you know, here's uh, where we can get into some real fun here. So we might as well just uh, uh, take a little uh, journey here into the whole Christmas theme because Christmas is a very fascinating uh, story to unravel, to really understand how ancient religions uh, affect the the religions of today and the practices of today. And most of us can read. Uh, remember as children being told the story of Santa Claus and maybe you're told that, you know, if you're good You'll get presents if you're bad. You might get a, a lump of coal uh, You can even remember maybe the first time you were told by a sibling or a teacher or your parents that Santa Claus wasn't real And in the media lately, there's been an uproar of the school teacher who told her second grade class that Santa wasn't real uh, But today you know we can go a lot deeper than these sort of superficial histories and take a, a journey into the history of Christmas and Santa Claus and sort of bring out what the the myth is all about and is it really myth and what what reality is there behind it and i think by doing so we gain a much deeper appreciation for the holiday season okay and uh you know so Up on the Coast to Coast AM website, image number one up there is uh, uh, a depiction of Jesus being born under a star. And this is a very common theme. And uh, why is Jesus being born under this star? And the star, I think, is the star Sirius, uh, which in image number two directly below that, you can see star Sirius pointing directly at the Earth below the belt of Orion. Uh, on the uh, upper half of that split screen there, which, where it says Christmas Eve. But uh, I also think that Jesus is depicted there in that image. He's really being depicted as the sun. And why would the sun be important around the Christmas celebrations? And why would the sun be amalgamated into this character that we're told was a literal historical person named Jesus? And I think it's because the sun gives us food and clothing and shelter, and you know the photosynthesis in the plants becomes the medicines and inebriants and poisons and the lumber for the homes and uh, fuel for the fire and things like that, and the sun has been worshipped around the world by many ancient cultures, and it just so happens that the sun dies and is reborn again at christmas time and and to many people that may sound completely absurd but um you know what we what we have is really this uh this story of uh, around christmas of the death and birth of the sun that's what the whole tradition was originally about and um you know those who live in the uh, southern hemisphere of our globe would experience uh, these things in our summertime versus us in their summertime so uh, but many Christian art depictions depict God as being born under a star, and is there a correlation between this and the events that are happening that night in the sky? And I think that these are things that are blatantly obvious when we get in and we really begin to, you know, well, first we have to lay our biases, our biases aside and our, our predisposed religious beliefs, and we have to Look at things, how ancient peoples and cultures would have seen these things and how they would have marked time changes and calendar changes to themselves during the year. And so, you know, this split screen, uh, which is image number two, is really showing this alignment, this marker point of what marks what today we call Christmas Day. But to the ancients, this would have been the real New Year's Day. And I think that, that that christmas and new years have been separated into two and uh, different distinct days to hide the correlation that this is really christmas day is really the beginning of the new year it's when the sun begins to head north again and it happens directly underneath these the the, uh, the constellation of orion you have these the three stars in the belt they almost align with the star sirius who sort of barks the return of the flooding of the Nile at this time of year. Of course, it's uh, a right there, There, I believe, just in the southern hemisphere there. And then uh, on Christmas morning, about 6, 630 in the morning, the sun is born under this direct alignment. And people can look on software like uh, uh, Stellarium and things like that, and they can follow along looking directly east. They'll see this alignment happening. Right over, uh, right you know, right over there, the sky on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. So this is the death and rebirth of the sun, or the sun in the sky, is something that everyone can go out and see every single year. Hmm. And uh, you know, if we look at, if we consider what happens to the sun during the autumn or fall, from the summer solstice, which is roughly June 21st, until the winter solstice. The sun appears closer closer to the south each day, and the shadows change a little bit. You'll notice that, uh, you know, the shadows in your house are a little bit different every day. And from summer to winter solstice, the days get a little bit shorter. The nights get longer. The days are colder. And from the summer solstice until the winter solstice, the sun falls literally toward the south each day. And then from the winter solstice until the summer solstice, the sun begins to rise more and more to the north each day, the opposite. But what happens is on December 21st on the winter solstice, the the sun doesn't just bounce right back to the north again. Okay. What happens is basically to, you know, from, you know, uh, naked eye for, for the naked eye, for people living 2,000 years ago looking – out to the east, and watching this whole thing, it appeared that the sun actually stopped moving north or south for three days.
1: just lingers it appeared
4: that the: yeah, it just lingers there, and that's what the word solstice" actually means. It means "sun stands still." So the sun would stand still for three days, and then, on Christmas morning, on december 25th, after its three days in the tomb, it begins gradually to head north again towards spring and summertime, towards the fertility of spring and the warmth of summer, and planting the crops and everything, and then this whole cycle uh, repeats. Mm
1: -hmm. And going on to some of the other uh, aspects where the idea of of Christmas and the uh, familiar things that go along with it, like Santa Claus, how has that been shaped over the years?
4: Well, Santa Claus is a very interesting story. And, you know, what I want to do is uh, let me – I'm just going to go over some of my uh, my notes here because Santa Claus over the years really started, its earliest form is shamanism. And uh, the modern form comes from Washington Irving and his Knickerbocker History of New York in 1809, uh, Henry Livingston Jr. and uh, Professor Clement Clark Moore. Uh, they wrote a story about Christmas in 1822. We have William Boyd, Susan Warner Thomas Nast and Harper's uh, Weekly in 1863, uh, Norman Rockwell, and then Coca-Cola—all of these uh, organizations and people contributed to what is the current depiction of Santa Claus. But when we go back and we look at the story anciently, and in fact, uh, image four up on your website is an image of Baba Yaga or Grandmother Yaga, which is is the uh, it's a Russian-like grandmother of the woods, and she goes out and she meets the three wise men, and the three wise men are actually, they just happen to be depicted there in image number three, and for those who uh, question if there were three, because the Bible doesn't actually mention three wise men, but there were three, and, and the Catholic Church actually had a cult that recognized them in Cologne, but their names are Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, which are post up there, and they Baba Yaga, which is in Image 4, she goes out there and she meets these three wise men, and she's associated anciently in Russian traditions with giving presents to the children. Okay. So this is, uh, you know, where we first have this first tie to this St. Nicholas sort of cri- uh, Christmas story of this character that gives presents to the children. And um, and then from there, the, the story goes into the ancient... Uh, uh, shamanic uh, symbol of Hearn, which is in image five on the right side there. And Hearn is sort of an amalgamation of the reindeer or the Siberian deer and a human figure. And uh, what happens is is this character, uh, he sort of eventually gets morphed into this character that we know of, the, the Roman god Pan, who uh, had, uh, he was like, had a goat's head and goat's Feed in a man's body, right? And he would go around with uh, all this licentious behavior and he would try and uh, have sex with the women and be drunk and party and do all of these bad things. And so uh, so we, what we have here is a connection from this, this shaman story, this this character of Hearn being uh, and shamanism and inebriation with the mushroom and things like that, being brought forward into Roman times with this character, or the god Pan, and then in the in the Saturnalian rites of of Rome, they would have this uh, orgiastic uh, party for several days around the the Christmas
1: season. Hmm. And He's, so, Pan sounds like sort of the, the Charlie Sheen so, so, of the ancient world. What's that? He, he sounds like the Charlie Sheen of the ancient world.
3: <laughs>
4: oh, the Charlie Sheen of the ancient world. That's funny. Um You know, uh, well, I guess if you want to give all of the over publicity that the media gives that. But, you know, this is, yeah, I guess in a sort of way, if you want to give a a modern day uh, pun to it. But um, so if we go to page two of the images, what happens is this this character, Hearn, and then who became Pan up in the up in the top image on page two is image number six. This character becomes. Pells Nikel or Krampus uh, in many of the European versions of the Christmas story, and he's Saint Nicholas's uh, devilish helper.
1: Yeah, it looks and, like looks like the devil. I mean, he, that little kid right. he's got in his clutches looks uh, terrified.
4: Right, exactly. Exactly, but he's actually Saint Nicholas's dark helper. So this Pan Hearn character, what he did was he would go around and, and sort of deal out the. The punishment for the naughty kids. And in the image there on the right, uh, we can see the kids uh, worrying that Pels Nikkel is behind uh, behind Santa Claus there, right? And they're worried if they were good and going to get presents, or if they were bad and get a lump of coal, or worse, Pels Nikkel, or, uh, yeah, Pels Nikkel <laughs> is going to run right. off with them. Right, right.
1: a worse a visit from this unsavory character. He's got a long tongue and a tail and horns. My goodness. Well, that is something we never really talk about with Santa. It's always, it's always about the gifts. What about the naughty children? They've been getting a bit of a pass lately in the modern world. Well, we're going to get more into this uh, when we come back. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM. My name is Rob Simone. Yeah, we're talking about what is some of the alternative theories behind some of the things we take for granted, not only just Christmas, New Year's, but, well, how did all this St. Nicholas thing start? How did these traditions get to where they got? And that is what we're talking about with Jan Irvin. We're talking about the evidence of psychoactive elements in the formation of Judeo-Christianity, uh, astrotheology, and shamanism, and we're going to get right back into it right after this. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. And Jan, right before the break, we were talking about St. Nick and the the legend of Santa Claus and how it uh, kind of evolved and morphed. I mean, it really was a, uh, a, a conglomeration of a lot of different traditions from a lot of different countries.
4: Absolutely. And uh, St. Nicholas himself even has a bit of a fascinating story around him. Uh, St. Nicholas is said to have died on December 6th in the 4th century, which is the day of the Epiphany in the Orthodox Church. And uh, his day is celebrated as the Feast of Altar Boys, or a, a, wherein a, a boy bishop was chosen as a sort of king for a day, reminiscent of the old pagan idea of king for a day or you know the, the fool of the day, whatever, that was sacrificed. However, the boy bishop, his life was spared. And uh, St. Nicholas was also the patron saint of children, prostitutes, thieves, and sailors. And so uh, – It's quite a yeah, mix. A little bit – what's that? Quite a mix, yeah. <laughs> so at not really what we're, what we're told about with this character and how – uh, he relates into the Christmas story, but because he's the patron saint of children, the Catholic Church sort of placed him over top on the sort of the figure of Baba Yaga and the the, shaman, the shamanic figure and kind of uh, put it all together into a new package that uh, was consumable for for their market, basically.
3: Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, the idea of uh, of this is is something that's not new, how things get uh, turned into something else, how what we understand today could have come from something completely different. We see this, uh, you know, repeated all over. I mean, this is a this is just an effect of how things get distorted, uh, trends, sensibilities. What was wrong 100 years ago is now right and vice versa.
4: Right. And I think it also has a lot to do with things that were, you know, word of mouth myths and stories that were passed down generation after generation for a society to get along and whatnot eventually becomes a literal history that you have to believe is true and that the characters were real people. And then the essence of what the story is all about gets lost. But as I said at the beginning of the show, I think really by getting in and looking at the history of these, of this tradition, of the Christmas tradition, of seeing where Santa Claus and Pell's Nickel or Krampus comes from and understanding the history of these things, we really gain a much deeper appreciation for the whole Christmas season. Because, I mean, in, in ancient times, you literally thought that the sun, if it continued south, was never going to come back again, and all life on Earth perished. And you know, on Christmas morning, on on, this, on the morning of December 25th, when you saw the Virgo, or saw the sun born between Virgo's legs on the horizon, which is the constellation of the of the Virgin, when you saw that alignment directly underneath the uh, the, the three wise men, Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar, you know, in the belt of Orion there, you knew that the sun was going to be reborn. So it was a time of celebration and gift-giving. And I think that, you know, interestingly, and we'll get into this more in a moment, one of the gifts that was commonly given was the ineb- inebriation of the mushroom. So you gave the mushroom for a present. And very interestingly, the, the mu- these types of mushrooms, the Amanita muscaria mushrooms, Grow in a symbiotic relationship, or in a microisal symbiotic relationship, with many different types of of trees, especially the evergreen trees. So here we have these brightly colored packages that appear magically overnight under the tree by Santa Claus, and likewise the mushrooms. These bright colored packages appear magically under the trees out in nature. So all of these these stories can be traced back to things that we can find out in nature. And if we don't look at all of them so literally and we look at the stories for what they imply and the symbolism behind it all, I think we're given a much more fulfilling story. And in fact, it's a story that we bring right into the middle of our living rooms year after year and pass down generation after generation. So it's a story that hasn't died even if it's become completely commercialized.
1: Right. Well, how much of the uh, New Testament do you accept? Do you think Jesus was a man, he walked around, uh, or do you find evidence that uh, a lot of that is uh, not uh, how it happened?
4: Well, I think that looking at the history of the New Testament and everything, uh, there is a lot less evidence of these people being historical in my opinion, than there is of them being mythology. There was Joshua Ben Nunn, Joshua Ben Pandera. There was uh, a Caesar to uh, many different characters that have been uh, pointed out as key figures, and including the Teacher of Righteousness in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls that have been suggested as all having been possible uh, human characters that were uh, all included into the Jesus character, but it, was he just one person? I don't think so. And in fact, you know, getting into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the church admits, like on the Saint Mark's Basilica website, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are North, South, East, and West. It's the Lion, the Ox, the the Eagle, and Man. It's uh, you know the the four directions and all of these different meanings that tie into all of the different layers of the mystery schools and everything. So you know maybe at one level of the mythology we're looking at a human being at another level of the mythology we're looking at the the experience or the attitude or the way of living that this being is trying to portray and rather than going around killing everybody to force our literal idea of this interpretation on others when we understand it as this experience of being good and not judging others see because you know at the time with the uh, the jewish aspect of the religion if you weren't jewish you weren't allowed into the religion so you know it was the christianity was an offshoot that allowed jews and gentiles to be a part of the new religion and to live in peace together so uh this was something that was needed to end the fighting between the different religious factions and groups at the time and so uh you know, and I know a lot of religious historians would probably be pulling their, their hair out listening to me saying that there's not much evidence for Jesus as a historical character. But I think, you know, when people read John Allegro's work and uh, uh, Professor Robert Price's work and Earl Doherty's work and Timothy Freck and Peter Gandhi and uh, Dia Murdoch or Acharya S., uh, you know, and, and many people love to attack Acharya S.'s books, uh, saying that she doesn't provide any evidence in there. But I've I've yet to see anybody who's read her books actually make such a claim against her work because her works are chock full of evidence that, that Jesus was not a historical uh, figure. And in fact, uh, I have a very interesting quote here that I think your audience would find very interesting. It's from uh, a church father, Epiphanius, from the 4th century. And he says about uh, this whole discussion that we've been having regarding the solstice and the sun and everything, uh, This and, and this text, by the way, was actually omitted, and it was missing for a 1,000 years, and it wasn't published until the mid-1800s when they found an older copy of this text, which had this missing portion in it. And it says, For the Savior was born during the 42nd year of the Roman Emperor Augustus, for these days as follows. Christ was born on the 8th before the Ides of January, 13 days after the winter solstice, the epiphany, and the increase of the light of day. Greeks, I mean the idolaters, celebrate this day on the 8th before the calends of January. Romans call Saturnalia, Egyptians, Cronia, and Alexandrians, Cecilia. For this division between the signs of the zodiac, which is the solstice, comes on the 8th before the calends of January, and on the day begins to lengthen because the light is receiving its increase. And it completes a period of 13 days until the 8th before the eyes of January, the day of Christ's birth, with, uh, with a 13th of an hour added each day. The Syrian sage Ephraim testified to this calculation in his commentaries when he said, quote, thus the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, his birth in the flesh, or perfect incarnation, which is called the Epiphany, was revealed after a space of 13 days from the beginning of the increase in light. So they're saying right here that this entire celebration and all of these different, and he even calls them idolaters, because they have the exact same celebration in the Greek, Egyptian, and Alexandrian cultures that later became the Christian celebration. So here's this 4th century church father telling us that this story existed and was completely widespread at the time
1: hmm. well let me ask you this i mean with all the medicinal uses for mushrooms not just their mind altering effects but like cordyceps and the fact that they can a spore can travel through the universe and seed perhaps uh, life on other planets why isn't there more a sort of religions or uh, f- faith that incorporate mushrooms as a as a grand cosmic symbol of God's ability to to pass life throughout the universe.
4: Well, you know, and I I know many of your listeners would pull their hair out if I said that I think Judeo-Christianity is just that, and I think that I published sufficient evidence in my book, The Holy Mushroom, Evidence of Mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity, to argue that, in fact, uh, the mushroom was that. In fact, a friend of mine, before he died last year, was working on a book called The Most High arguing that Christianity is just that but i think around the world you know when we look at the uh the hindu religion and the rig vedas i think that soma was the mushroom or was cannabis or something uh, to that effect we have teonanacatl in the in the uh, uh maya culture and uh, uh mexican uh, native mexican religions that celebrated the mushroom and and as i mentioned earlier we have the Ouija tribe up in Northern California. And there is evidence around the world that a, a religion did exist. But it's interesting that you bring this, this issue up, because the evidence that I published in my book, The Holy Mushroom, is strong enough for people to go out and make a legal defense that they should have the legal right to practice uh, using mushrooms as their religion. But as far as I know, nobody's taken the uh, the evidence that I published, and I did publish a uh, a primary canonized Christian text in that book, that as I mentioned earlier, that specifically discusses the holy mushroom.
1: Well, so give us a, just, like an example of like a chapter and verse. Like, how come we have so much in the Old Testament, New Testament, but no specific mention or outright mentions of what you perceive as a dominant theme?
4: Well, you know, I think. It, well, if you look in uh, like the Song of Solomon, even in the book of Genesis, things like Mandrake are discussed, which are, in fact, entheogens or psychedelics. Uh, we can talk about the uh, ideas of the burning bush and things like that, um, uh, burning uh, the smoke burning inside the tabernacle. These are all allusions to this sort of thing. And, in fact, um, in uh, the, the story of the manna in the desert, when we look up the word desert or wilderness there in the Bible, uh, and cross-reference that word to Strong's Concordance, midbar. Midbar is defined as a a, a cattle pasture, whether cattle are driven. And so this could be a, a perfect allusion uh, to these sort of uh, practices. But we have to go into, and as I mentioned earlier, there is mention of it in the, in the Jewish Kabbalah, in the book of Zohar, and in the Orthodox Church, we do have this Canaanized Christian texts, the Epistle to the Renegade Bishops, that specifically do discuss the mushroom. Uh, So, you know, while it's not blatantly out there in the public, I think part of the mystery schools and part of uh, just like in the Hermetic traditions and alchemical traditions uh, was that these were mysteries for the initiates, and they had to work their way through the symbolism and decipherment and understanding you know, things like the trivium and quadrivium, uh, which are the ancient seven liberal arts that these mysteries were based on before they could uh, work into uh, deciphering the higher mysteries in their complete form. So there are all of these allusions to it. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, myself and a few other researchers like Professor John Rush or Professor Carl Ruck, we have uh, literally uh, thousands of images, Christian icons, Found in churches and cathedrals all over the world, very clearly, and in, in ancient Christian texts, very clearly showing these things. So, uh, while it might not be directly out for the public and all you know the masses to see, or the profane as they would have called them, it is there in uh, the text, in the symbolism and iconography, if people go out and look for it.
1: It, is there. You mentioned the, the Kabbalah, which is, of course, uh, some people call it Jewish mysticism. Uh, how uh, forthright or openly do they talk about uh, the mushroom or the symbology of it in, in the Zohar in the books?
4: Well, if uh, you'll give me a second, I can do a quick uh, uh, search and tell you where, uh, if I can find this really quick.
1: Well, um, yeah, well, while you're looking for that, I'm, the, the reason I'm wondering that is because. Uh, in your opinion, which ancient text is the most blatant when it comes to this underlying theme of uh, the importance of mushrooms in this uh, in the religious context?
4: I would say that the the one that's the most profound and out there the more that we look at it and study it is the Epistle to the renegade bishops but this one in the book of Zohar, it starts off the secret of secrets out of the scorching noon of Isaac, out of the dregs of wine, a fungus emerged, a cluster, male and female together, red as a rose, expanding in many directions and paths. The male is called Samael. The female is always included within him. And so, you know, this, this right here is very telling. And when you get into uh, say, what we've put out in uh, in our book, theology and Shamanism, or what Professor Carl Ruck has published in some of his books on this topic, this is exactly the, the symbolism and everything like that John Allegro talked about, the mushroom represented both male and female. It was uh, alluded to as wine, um, you know, the the in the epistle to the renegade bishops that i published the the holy mushroom comes and saves the orthodox uh monks from the uh roman invasion from the roman catholics that w- that were coming to take over uh uh, uh the the uh, i forget which which island one of the three finger islands saint patamos island i believe is what it was but uh uh, they're coming to, uh, you know, to, to close down or take over these monasteries, and they say that the mushroom comes – the holy mushroom comes and saves them from these – from the Catholics, and that all were saved by the mere possibility of tasting the holy mushroom.
1: Wow. Well, are there, and, are there uh, any religions today that have mushroom ceremonies in, in any particular culture?
4: Well, Native native cultures, you know, and in fact, uh, I've discussed this matter with the head, head of the Oklahoma Native American Church, who is James Warren Mooney, or James Warren Flying Eagle Mooney, and uh, he says that the Native Americans still very much respect the amanita and the mushrooms. Uh, while the church is recognized more uh, profoundly for their use of peyote, uh, it is recognized there. And in fact, he, working with a, a doctor out of... Uh, 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 Utah, they've been working together showing that uh, the the Mormon religion was originally founded on both the use of peyote and the Amanita muscaria mushroom, and they've found significant uh, evidence for that, and in fact, I've interviewed the both of them on that topic on my show.
1: Good heavens. Well, I mean, this is a lot to get into. We're going to find out more about this uh, when we come back, and we're going to take your phone calls. Right after the break, I want to hear what kind of questions you have there. We're covering a lot of ground here, uh, astrotheology, shamanism, and the idea of panspermia, the fact that a little tiny spore of a mushroom can, can be embedded in a stone, a meteorite, and travel through the cold space with all the radiation, break through an atmosphere on some planet, and still be viable. It's been a proven theory for a long time. And this, quite possibly, is how the universe creates more people, more things. We're talking with Jan Irvin Moore right after the break. You're listening to Coast to Coast AM. Yeah, we are back, and we are stirring up a lot of controversy and questions. I'm already getting emails about some of the things that we've uh, covered. We, you know, we go through a lot of topics, and we touch upon so many things that I know it's hard to sort of keep up. You want to sort of Google everything but it goes by too quick. If you're having trouble, you can always become a Coast Insider, and this way you can go back and review any show. You can even download it and listen to it in your iPod, and this way you can give you a chance to really soak into this material because, you know, this is like a huge library of information that you're not going to get anywhere else. So if you want to get more information on that, it's uh, 15 cents a day, Coast Insider. Just go to coast dot Com, and that will hook you up on everything that you might have missed. And we're going to talk with uh, Jan about this whole idea of, of mushrooms and how they could have a cosmic significance. And, of course, your questions right after this. We are back talking with Jan Irvin, And just before the break, we were talking about uh, Native American tribes. Do you think that uh, indigenous cultures have a, a, a continuing, a closer relationship to uh, psychoactive substances in their ceremonies than the big, almost corporate mainstream religions?
4: Oh,
1: absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, want the, me to, you, want, you want me to embellish on uh, that? No? that was, that's the simple answer, absolutely, and it makes sense because, I mean, any group of people that are closer to the Earth would incorporate, you know, things from the Earth uh, in, in a much more, uh, you know, normal way, I guess. I mean, uh, right. It, you know,
4: well, you know and, and when you bring that up, Rob, it reminds me that a lot of people will say, well, you know, anything that you – Consume from outside you couldn't possibly lead to a real spiritual experience. And, you know, and that's one of the most common things that I hear from people when I do a large radio interview. And if you imagine that for a minute that, you know, the plants really give us our life because without plants, the animals don't eat anything. And whether or not you're a vegetarian or a meat eater, uh, you run out of food pretty soon and there's no life. So, Plants really give us our consciousness and our, you know, our lives. So why, why not therefore our consciousness and our religious experience along with it, and, uh, you know, that humankind has made a connection with the plants to have these religious experiences throughout history. And it's not saying that you can't achieve it with meditation or drumming and other practices as well. But we don't even know for certain if, you know, meditating and Using uh, substances like different types of mushrooms even lead to the same type of experience. How can you have a mushroom experience with peyote or a peyote experience with meditation if you if you see what I mean?
1: Well, I know that we are capable of a lot of different states of consciousness, and absolutely. some of them are socially acceptable and others are less than in fact, some of them are are just illegal um uh, these psychoactive mushrooms are illegal in the United States and many other countries too right
4: right and in fact well amanita muscaria are legal here in the United States and in fact uh you know there's certain places where you can where you can go and buy them legally and you can go out and hunt them in the forest and nobody will bother you but uh other types the psilocybe mushrooms are particularly illegal in this country they used to be legal in in uh Holland but uh, a couple of years ago they were outlawed, uh, I think, even for the locals there, but there may be some exceptions. But uh, basically, you know, you have one death from somebody who's a, a foreigner going on vacation in Holland and having mushrooms and jumping off a bridge. Meanwhile, probably that same evening, several hundred people died under the influence of alcohol and suicides or murder or violent behavior, car accidents, et cetera. And yet, alcohol wasn't outlawed. So it's, you know, the the uh, the balance or the the ratio between the level of punishment and the laws compared to the damage done is significantly out of whack.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, there's a lot of questions, but the phone lines are blowing up. Let's jump right into them. Let's go east of the Rockies. Scott from Appleton, Wisconsin. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
5: Thank you, Mister Simone, and uh, I'm enjoying. Being on Coast to Coast, one more thing. Thank you for taking my call. I have a question and a comment for your guest. Uh, You mentioned Buckminster Fuller. Um, My my question is, though, does he think the iconography and the symbolism of the Muslim mosque, their more or less mushroom shape, is part of this um, mushroom in scriptural texts? And also, the, the part on Buckminster Fuller, if you ever saw a dandelion just before it's going to spread its spores, um, if you look at the mushroom the, at the dandelion, it looks like a geodesic
4: dome. And I'll take my answer off the air.
3: Thanks, Scott.
1: What do you think?
4: In, in regards to his first question and uh, Muslim symbolism, uh, myself and others have certainly suggested that the the mosques, etc., are related to the mushrooms, and certainly they do look like it, and uh, much of the symbolism in the mosques is based on sacred geometry of the quadrivium, and if uh, people are interested in, in finding out more on that, there is a, a book put out by Wooden Books specifically on Islamic design and how it ties into the quadrivium, but... Um, there are groups, in fact, in Afghanistan that still practice the use of the Amanita muscaria today. And in fact, the raven's bread or robin's brat is something that is still recognized as the Amanita muscaria in these parts of the world. So it's very possible that, uh, that the illusion that this, that this caller made is, is correct there. And uh, regarding uh, the geodesic dome and the flower that he talks about with Buckminster Fuller, I haven't seen that exact uh, correlation, but it wouldn't surprise me a bit, because when you get into studying the quadrivium and sacred geometry and this type of information, uh, you begin to see how uh, uh, the information is really everywhere, and basically... Buckminster Fuller had a very solid education in the trivium and quadrivium, which is how he was able to come up with the theories and work that he did.
1: Yeah, so much of what we see is inspired by nature, of course. Uh, it's all around. Well, let's go west of the Rockies. Uh, Murray from Leavenworth, Washington. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
6: Hello. Um, I just wanted to point out something about peyote. It happens to be a cactus, not a mushroom. And... uh I don't know where he get this, got the idea that peyote
4: was a mushroom, but it's not. We never said it was a mushroom. Oh, yeah? Okay. It just implied. I, I made a correlation that uh, the, the Mormon church, that uh, uh, the, the head of the uh, Okubueha Native American Church, James Warren Mooney, and a doctor out of Utah were looking at peyote and the mushroom as part of the origins of the Mormon religion.
3: I see. Yeah, thanks, Mark.
4: I busted uh,
6: uh, two young men for 40 pounds of peyote that they were going to process.
3: Okay.
4: Yeah, well, pe- peyote is a very ancient uh, religious yeah. sacrament, and it's right. uh, still held sacred in many parts of, the, of uh, North America today by many, well, there's at least two or 300,000 practitioners of the Native American church. Right.
1: Yeah, Thank well, you. Yeah, thanks, Murray. Uh, That's uh, just good to clarify that. Uh, Well, let's go to the wildcard line, shall we? Uh, Let's go to Alan in uh, Ogden, Utah. Welcome to Coast to Coast, A.M.
3: Oh, hello. Thank you.
7: Yeah, I uh, was listening to Ian Punnett uh, not too long ago talking about kind of similar subjects, and it came up briefly that uh, Stilton, which is a blue cheese from England, Uh, Produces not a uh, exactly a drug effect, but it it really enhances dreams. It gives you gives you very uh, vivid dreams. I've tried it and it does. I'm wondering if this would be in the same
4: category, you know, or maybe a milder version of what the guest is talking about.
1: Hmm. How about about that, uh, Jan?
4: I've I've never looked into that. I do know a number of mycologists that uh, would be able to answer that question better than I. But I would have to look into that before I could give a uh, a good answer on that. Mm-hmm.
3: All
1: right. How about one more wild card line, Josh in Hollywood, California. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
7: Hey, hi
8: guys. How you doing?
7: Good, thanks. Yeah, man. I always, I, I always knew it that the that the, that the, that the high priest was up to no good.
3: <laughs> you
7: know. Yeah, you know. With the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna start my own church. It's called the the Church of the Magic Mushroom. And and we're going to listen to Jimi Hendrix, Axis Boldo's Love. We're going to listen to The Beatles. are going to listen to Pink Floyd. And, you know, and everybody's going to just feel very entertained, you know, because I think ancients really entertained themselves with this stuff. I mean, where did they get all this, you know, pragmatic and dogmatic stuff, and then it all becomes like, you know, the mind control and stuff. Man, I, you know, that's kind exactly. of – Exactly. That's really spooky, you know. So <laughs>
1: Well, there's recreational uses, and then there's re- uses for religious or ceremony, and they're, they're different uh,
3: different categories.
4: Right, well, you know, and even the, the recreational use can be – it becomes questionable because it's – we only have rec- recreational use because we've removed the spiritual use and the spiritual teachings, the traditional uses of these things from the knowledge of the masses of the people – and then what happens is many of these kids will go to rave parties and things like that, and they'll think that they're doing it uh, recreationally, and they'll have a very deep spiritual experience very often by accident with these substances. So, you know, the 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 dividing line between recreational use and spiritual use is a very, very thin, uh, thin one.
1: Yeah, these are powerful, dangerous things, and they are not to be... Uh... Uh, Tamper with lightly. Let's go to the first-time caller line. Uh, Chico, California. Ryan, welcome to the show.
9: Hey guys, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Hey, um, yeah, I really like the conversation tonight, and I I started studying some of this stuff about a year ago. This time, kind of just came my way, and I really got into it. But um, you know, one of one of the things that I was questioning was, you know, how how would the guests interpret the shroud of Turin? You know, with uh, the fact that Jesus' story is kind of a combination of a lot of different prophets over the years and different religious figures, Um, you know, a shroud of turn is kind of a controversial thing. And it's, I remember hearing the explanation of it, and it seemed that, you know, there was no other way that it could have been um, created other than some kind of energy force passing through it. So I I was just curious about what Jen.
4: Uh, his interpretation of
3: that would
4: be yeah. Well, I don't really give the shroud of Turin much weight at all, and uh, a lot of those theories are based on a, a heavy amount of uh, fallacious arguing and arguing the arbitrary, for that matter. And first, that they would have, you know, they would have to prove some spiritual energy. They would have to prove that it wasn't uh, just a cloth laid over a body. There's been many shrouds that have uh, that have turned up over the years in many places across Europe. And, uh, I think the shroud theory has been, uh, well debunked by many, uh, professional scholars out there as well as independent scholars. And I, I, you know, unless you're studying the history channel and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, which I don't, you know, the history channel has lost a lot of credence for the material that they put forward over the last couple of years. I really wouldn't put much weight in it at all.
3: Well,
1: do you think that, um, the, the story of Jesus, uh, uh, has any artifacts that are are hard to disprove?
4: Uh, you know, you know, not really. And I mentioned a number of authors earlier who have gone gone into a lot of that. I know that there are academics who would disagree with me. Uh, at the same time, these academics need to deal with the mushroom information, need to deal with the archaeoastronomy information need to deal with a lot of the evidence that shows the the amalgamation of, of uh, these many different characters, characters and facets of the religion before I would say that it's based on this one historical figure. I've been studying religions and reading academic journals and books on this subject for 20 years, and I still have yet to see an argument that uh, convinced me that Jesus was a historical person.
1: Even um, even the sword of destiny, the sword of Longinus, carried by Charlemagne and Constantine into victory, and and Hitler, does that uh, uh, particular artifact uh, think that there might be something to that?
4: You mean that you know the one that uh, Constantine uh, created the uh, the the rokai with to to represent the Catholic Church?
1: The, the sword that, that? Pierced, that pierced Jesus' side. That that so many great rulers sought after and carried with them. Okay,
4: and so what was your question about the, the well, sword? Did, that do you,
1: yeah, do you think that uh, artifact has any uh, credibility?
4: Well, I would have to see it. I mean, uh, you know, how many, where is this artifact? First, I would like to see it. Second, how do we know that it's the spear that pierced Jesus' side?
1: Yeah, no, it, obviously there's a lot of questions around it. It is one of those artifacts that have, has a real place in history. And I thought that one right. might have uh, well,
4: see, you know, piqued it, your interest. The thing is, is it's not on me. I can't prove a negative, okay? It's on these people that want to make these claims about the sphere, about the shroud of Turin, and things like that. The onus of proof is on them to supply the evidence beyond any shadow of a doubt, answering all of these little questions and, and you know, minute possibilities and covering all of the loopholes. If the onus of proof is on them and until they've done so, it's arguing the arbitrary and it's just an argument. You know, when you when you get in and you study logic in these things, it's not an argument that you spend time on. You, you consider it as a possibility, but you don't give it much more credence than that.
3: Yeah, you
1: can't, uh, you can't you can't cover the person
4: making the argument.
5: Yeah,
1: you can't cover everything. Let's go to wildcard line. Doug, Oakland, California. Welcome to the show.
5: Yeah, thank you, uh, George, and thank you. Um interested
1: in what your guest is saying. <laughs> well, George isn't here, but... Uh, but oh, I'm sorry. That's okay.
5: Uh, uh, Mark, right? Rob. Oh, oh Rob. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rob, uh, I ask that you please examine two um, important figures, historians. One, Josephus, another, Ramsey, an archaeologist of the uh, 19th century. Uh, uh, Josephus was current to Christ, but let me just say something about Ramsey first, Um uh, please uh, examine him. Uh, he was a 19th century archaeologist. He set he set out to disprove uh, the writer. Uh, he set out to disprove Luke Acts, the writer. He wanted to show that Luke was a not a historian that, whose statements could be relied upon. He ends up calling Luke an historian of the highest pedigree. And uh, the principal uh, the test that he would use was that you t- you, you 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 take a sample of facts because you can't. You can't test all the facts and acts in Luke, and um, if if it ends up that the sample uh, is uh, reliable, then you draw the inference that that all of the historical facts can be uh, relied upon. Uh, let me just give you one example. Um, doomvers, did you have you studied Greek? Yes, You're Okay, the the term for uh, for governor uh, Doomvers was not found. They could only find the other term, which was archaeo something. But but they did eventually find that term Doomers on a some kind of a monument, and so that's just one example of the many facts that that uh, not all the facts. You might only be able to test seven or eight or nine percent of the facts that are in those two books. But when you when you come up with a uh, reliable on those facts, then you draw the inference that. You know that that this is a historian whose statements are statements uh, that that can be relied upon. He's a good he's a really good authority. Really and Josephus also was a current historian to Christ. He had access to current observers of Christ. Uh, he uh, was with Trajan when Trajan uh, uh, destroyed uh, the Israel uh, Israel knocked down the temple and all that. He confirms all the basic points of the gospel. So would you please read Ramsay and Josephus? Okay.
1: Well, let's see what the uh... What Doug, uh, uh, you make some good points there, uh, Jan. You have any thoughts on that?
4: I haven't uh, studied Ramsey, so I wouldn't be able to comment on those uh, mm-hmm. citations specifically. But uh, you know, you have to when you make associations, you also have to rule, rule out other, uh, all other possibilities. As far as Josephus, Tacitus, and many of these others, uh, many, many, many biblical scholars have questioned the, the veracity of Josephus since uh, the early 1800s. There are you know book uh, bookfuls of uh, scholars out there who have uh, completely argued that that all of the you know just the way that the paragraphs are written in the Josephus text that are that relate to Jesus, for instance, uh, the flow of a certain paragraph will be completely mixed up with this with a sudden uh, mention of Jesus in there, and if you remove this mention of Jesus, suddenly the the, the original flow of the text returns. And I know many people bring up Josephus, but Josephus is not a a historian that many people, that many uh, academic scholars don't already contest for more than 200 years already.
1: Well, that is a good point. We'll have to just keep it right there for just a moment while we reflect on all of this. We're talking with. Jan Irvin, his website is linked up right now at coasttocoastam.com. We're talking about the holy mushroom, evidence of mushrooms and paganism in Christianity, and so much more. Your phone calls right after the break. Welcome back to the program. We're talking with Jan Irvin. His books include The Holy Mushroom, Evidence of Mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity, and Astro Theology in Shamanism, Christianity's Pagan Roots. We're talking about psychoactive substances and how they are woven in to the sacred texts and even modern-day religions. Your phone calls right after the break. We're back on Coast to Coast AM. And Jan, I want to ask you before we jump back into the phones about the use of psychedelics and MKUltra and mind control. Uh, we've heard about the experiments with LSD, but not so much about psilocybin.
4: Oh yeah, that's a that's a can of worms.
3: <laughs>
1: Thought it would be.
4: Yeah, well, you know, and that's a subject that I've actually been looking into a lot recently is the whole issue around MK Ultra and the psychedelic mushrooms, especially uh, psilocybin type mushrooms. And in fact, uh, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the show a man by the name of R. Gordon Wasson. He was the so-called Discoverer of magic mushrooms, and he published an article in May 1957 in Life Magazine that was really the kickoff that launched magic mushrooms, quote unquote, into uh, society. And you know, of course, the uh, Mazatec Indians in Oaxaca, Mexico, had been using them for who knows how many generations. But he was the first uh, white man, supposedly. And there's there's other stories that maybe a few others had gone down there and done it, but. Uh, He was the first white man who supposedly went down and did the mushrooms. Now, the the traditional story tells us that there was a CIA agent by the name of James Moore who was along with Wasson down in Mexico uh, for this original uh, experience, and that they later found out that he was CIA and, you know, they thwarted his attempts and things like that. But I've actually been investigating Wasson's background for – a number of years now working on a book that's going to become uh, uh, something to the effect of The Secret History of Magic Mushrooms, and I'm also working on uh, a different title, possibly like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Wasson. But when we dig into Wasson's background, as I mentioned earlier, he was the uh, vice president of public relations for J.P. Morgan Bank, first off. Okay. Second, he was, he was the – or a chairman to the Council on Foreign Relations. Third, he was very close friends with guys like Alan Dulles, who uh, was the head of the CIA for a number of years. And uh, you know, four, he worked with guys like Edward Bernays. But interestingly, it's said that at a chance meeting that he had at the Century Club in New York with Henry Luce, the former head of, of Time Life magazine, that this was why the whole series was published in Time Life. Well, first off, Back in the days, the Century Club was almost entirely intelligence officers. You know, yeah, sure, they might do a little painting or something here and there so that they could uh, be artists to to be uh, invited into the club. But uh, if you get into the club's records and things like that, almost everybody there was intelligence. And uh, Wasson and I have recordings from the Century Club of Wasson presenting to everybody there. I have lists of many of the intelligence officers that belong there, and pretty much everybody at the upper levels of the establishment knew about Wasson's research at the time he was doing all of this stuff. Now, uh, Wasson was a member of the Century Club, as was Henry Luce at Time Life magazine. Henry Luce just happens to have been a member of Skull and Bones. Wasson's boss, Henry P. Davison at J.P. Morgan Bank, was Skull and Bones, and in fact, Henry P. Davison was the guy who J.P. Morgan commissioned to create Time Life magazine. So Time Life magazine was a creation of J.P. Morgan Bank by Henry P. Davison. And we're supposed to believe that it was just this happenstance meeting of Wasson with the, with the head of, of Time Life, Henry Luce, at, uh, uh, at the Century Club that got this article published there. And uh, Henry Luce's wife is quoted in Time Magazine or, or somewhere, I don't remember exactly where, is saying that uh, she and her husband did more to popularize LSD than Tim Leary did. And when we get into the facts of these close ties between Wasson's direct boss at J.P. Morgan Bank and the creation of Time Life Magazine, and also there was this guy uh, I should mention for the uh, Kennedy assassination buffs out there, uh, C.D. Jackson, who is the head of U.S. psychological warfare, also worked at Time Life. And, uh, C.D. Jackson, of course, is the guy who, uh, purchased the Zapruder film, which they stored at Time Life for a number of years. And the interesting thing about that is Wasson, uh, oh. it, Wasson knew DeMoren, George DeMoran and Wasson was, uh, uh, worked, closely with people that knew lee harvey oswald and in fact george DeMoran shield's wife worked for zapruder so we have this tight-knit little group of people between the kennedy assassination between mk ultra and uh, the psychedelic mushrooms time life and jp morgan banks so wow to think yeah to think that this thing isn't tied to mk ultra I think is naive at best, and I think really what happened was somewhere along the line they realized that they couldn't fully control the mind control aspect of the mushroom experience. A certain number of people would wake up and break free of the mind control thing, uh, tactics that they were using with that, and you know which is why you know I tell people today that it's important that they have a foundation in the trivium and quadrivium before they even try these substances because it's very easy to mislead people if they don't have a good foundation and critical thinking to spot when someone's trying to uh, mislead them. Yeah. So,
1: no, that's. I'm glad know. I asked. It's, it's quite a rabbit hole. Um, well, <laughs> it is. Yeah, It's, it's
4: worth a whole other book and a, and a whole other show sometime. Maybe. I
1: think so. Well, let's jump back to the phones. There have been people patiently waiting. Let's go to the international line. Uh, David, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
5: Well, thank you very much, um, Rob and Jan. Uh, I wanted to ask Jan if he has um, looked into the work of Terence McKenna and Terence McKenna takes that whole uh, transpermia that idea that mushroom spores can survive space that may have come through come from outer space to another level, um, suggesting that they are actually part of uh, have an intelligence they are part of an in- intergalactic intelligence and actually we're seated kind of looking out are out looking for uh sentient beings to uh
4: raise their level of consciousness.
3: Yeah.
4: Well i y-, y I'm I'm glad that somebody brought Terrence McKenna up. I'm actually I'm friends with Terrence's brother Dennis McKenna and I've had Dennis on my show a number of times and in fact uh, as far as Terrence McKenna and his audio that's out there and publicly available, uh, about half of it back in uh, between 2002 and 2004, I released to the Internet from my personal archive. So about half or maybe a little over half of what's even out there available to the public is from my personal archives. Now, since first getting into McKenna in my late 20s and early 30s and, Uh, really studying the field of ethnobotany and ethnomycology for the last 20 years. I don't give Terrence near as much credence as I used to Terrence. He was a fantastic storyteller and I give him a lot of credit for being a great storyteller. But as far as accuracy and ethnobotany and things like that, he did have a lot of mistakes and probably upwards of 50%. And, uh, Granted, spores can survive. That is, it is proved that spores can survive uh, entry through the, uh, through the, you know, go, enter, entering through the atmosphere into the Earth and not burn up. But do we have enough proof that, uh, that these things have come from other planets? And I'm not sure that we do yet, but it is a possibility about that. We do know that mushrooms and plants and things give off chemicals where they communicate between each other. In fact, uh, Dennis McKenna has a book about uh, plant communication, as does uh, Stephen Booner. And, you know, so plants do communicate between each other with the chemicals and things that they give off and the colors that they have and everything about them. But, uh, and, and we can say that this is possible for the planet Earth, but do, we have the ability to go out and say, yes, it's part of a galactic thing. I'm not sure that we do yet. I'm willing to entertain it. I've, you know, I've tried the mushrooms myself, and I know for a fact that they can provide, you know, religious and out-of-body experiences and things. So uh, it's it's a possibility, but I need more proof before I would settle on anything positive on that. And okay. I, sorry to step on any McKenna fans out there.
3: Well,
1: that's a it's an honest answer. Uh, Well, let's go to uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the wild card line. Karen, welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
10: Thank you, Rob, and I hope that you will allow me to contrast a quick story and ask the question thereafter of your guests. Um, While living in Oregon back in the mid-'70s was my first experience of learning about these shrooms, as they called them back there, but I found it was a subculture to embrace them. And in contrast to that, um, I had been invited to do work on reservations with various nations like the Crow, Blackfoot, um, the Hopi, and the Creeks. And I wanted to make a distinction before asking the question. I found that on the reservations at the Sundance, it was forbidden, even though the Native American church may have coexisted in these environments, it was forbidden by the elders to interact with that kind of activity uh, while at sun dancing or while on sacred ground. I also noted that you didn't need those kind of things to have those kind of experiences because in my personal observation and research, I found the land itself did something to you. Like they would put you on the hill, you would have all kind of experiences like little people without any kind of um, plant ingestion or anything. And I found that very interesting that you could have ceremony and end up having the same results that some people took with these plants Mm -hmm. and things of that sort. The question I have is regarding, um, I noticed that in subcultures in the mid-80s that were outside of the nation, that they were actually cultivating a strand. And I wondered if you ever heard of a strand called Komote. A
4: strand of what?
10: It was a strain called comote. It was a mushroom strain that was being cultivated by subdivision groups, mostly. I, would,
4: I wouldn't I would know it by their local colloquial name. I would have to know it by its uh, you know Latin name.
10: Oh, I, I can't remember what it was, basically, because I was just an onlooker. But in that experience, one um, time, because most people didn't ever want me to be involved with it because of my mind and my ability to go without it and have similar experiences, but it seemed like the one time I tasted a little piece of it, it's made like a uh, mushroom, but a harder mushroom, basically. It was cultivated in a, a glove box, so to speak, from a strain. And it was like going into the reptilian world. Hmm. And, of course, I promised God, if I ever got back out of there, I would never do it again, and I never did it again. But the person who was doing the cultivation did it quite often. Wow. So in, in my Experience with the uh, nations, the different nations across the uh, reservations of America, I just wanted to emphasize that the Native American church it may have existed, but was never mingled or mixed with the spiritual, sacred ceremonies
4: that were being done.
1: Okay. Any thoughts, Jan?
4: Uh, well, you know, I would have to say maybe that's uh, specific to those groups or the group that she practiced that with, but it's certainly not uh, across the board. Uh, certainly drums, other ceremonies, uh, ceremonial practices, breeding techniques, etc., all work towards that. I spoke with James Warren Mooney about, uh, say, for instance, the use of uh, Datura or jimson weed, which is considered their most respected plant of all of the plants, and yet, uh, Mooney didn't know of anyone who was an expert practitioner or shaman with that plant. And he had practiced with it for, uh, I think he said two or six years, but had still never taken it or consumed it, but had slept on a bed made with it and these sort of things. So Mm -hmm. there are many ways that, you know, they may be practicing with the plants and utilizing the plants or other, you know, different techniques. And, uh, also, there is uh, in in traditional shamanism and in uh, the priest craft, there is also a practice of keeping things for the higher levels or the higher initiates and not giving giving them to those that are informed while telling them otherwise and that may be uh, something that has to be considered as well. I'm not saying that you know it's it's fact I just have to mention that possibility right. yes. and, and she mentioned. She, go ahead
1: yeah she mentioned that uh different strains i mean i'm just thinking about monsanto are, are there genetically modified forms of of
4: different well, mushrooms well, no, but not that i'm aware of but there are hundreds of of different uh psychoactive mushrooms that have been discovered mm-hmm. and in fact there's like uh, paul stamets of his published a full books on all of the different varieties but um she also mentioned lizards and i know uh, years ago, you guys had an author by the name of Rick Strassman on your show who wrote a book called DMT, the Spirit Molecule. Yeah. And psilocybin mushrooms do have a chemical called O phosphoryl 4 hydroxy n dimethyltryptamine. And that dimethyltryptamine aspect, while it's, it's a congener form of dimethyltryptamine, the lizards do have, or they, excuse me, the mushrooms do have that same or a similar congener form of DMT being psilocybin. And uh, many people do report seeing uh, various types of spirit worlds and things like that. But the DMT world does kind of seem sort of lizardish. But I should also point out, you know, one of the things that people need to be aware of is most of the things that people see under the influence of these things are different aspects of themselves that they suppress. So you have to be careful of saying that you're never going to do that again, because usually that's the ego that's talking, and it prevents us from gaining a deeper understanding of ourselves in that experience.
1: Yeah, yeah it's always a, it's a quest to go inward. Uh, let's go to the wild exactly. card line. Uh, Frederick, sure. Denver, Colorado. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
9: Hi, Jan. Hi, Rob. Hi. Thank you. I've actually Hello. been a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, my whole life, and I became fascinated at an early age with these entheogens. And I would like to bring attention to the Polish entomologist Sula Bennett, S-U-L-A-B-E-N-E-T, sure. who in 1936 right. from the Institute of Anthropological Sciences in Warsaw discovered in the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament references to hemp, both as yes. an incense – which was an integral part of the religious celebration and as an intoxicant. The Hebrew words are Kana bosm, K-A-N-E-H-B-O-S-M, and in the King James Version is translated as calamus. And the important part I'd like to draw attention to is Exodus 30, verses 22 through 30, which describes in great detail this sacred anointing oil. And I think that would be a, an important piece of the puzzle you're putting
4: together.
1: Great comment. Right.
4: Yeah. I'm I'm very familiar with uh, Sula Bennett's work, and in fact, Chris Bennett, no relation to her, has written a couple of books on that topic, uh, Green Gold, the Tree of Life, uh, Sex, uh, Something in the Bible, and uh, recently he wrote a book called uh, Soma and the Haoma Solution, but uh, he's published uh, extensively on the Cana Bosom and Calamus uh, uh, theory and has garnered a lot of support. And in fact, uh, last year he took that before uh, the Canadian courts to uh, try and uh, get uh, people the religious a- religious access to cannabis via these very texts that uh, this caller had just mentioned. So thanks for bringing that up.
1: Yeah, as I say, there there is a lot that we're discovering, and uh, there's an opening of knowledge that is coming with this. Uh, This age of Aquarius, this 2012, as we're slipping into. So uh, stay with us. We're going to talk more about this. And, of course, uh, more of your phone calls are going to coming right up. Uh, Don't forget to go to coasttocoastam.com and take a look at some of the images that Jan has provided us that sort of chronicle some of his research. And I think you'll find them quite stimulating. Come right back. More phone calls with Jan Urban. My name is Rob Simone. This is Coast to Coast. A. M. Yeah, welcome back to Coast to Coast A. M. Just having a a really wild conversation. Uh, they're just touching on a lot of different points about different religions and shamanism. We're talking about the use of psychoactive substances in the in the course of mainstream religion and uh, and other uh, belief systems. Now, this is nothing new, but what is new is what Jan is pointing out and how in modern day culture the use of some of these. Uh, drugs were were uh, put forward by people who are in very p- prominent positions. You know, the head of the CFR and uh, CIA. I mean, it, when you start to uncover how these things are present in our society and how they're used not not only today but throughout history, you get a completely different view of the world, and it all starts to unravel. And that's what we're doing. And we're taking your phone calls along with the ride. Coming right back with Jan Irvin. We're talking with Jan Irvin. His his books include The Holy Mushroom, Evidence of Mushrooms in Judeo-Christianity, and uh, Astro Theology and Shamanism. His uh, website is linked up right now at coasttocoastam.com. And Jan, are you ready for the final stretch of the phone calls? They're still fully lit. The board is absolutely full. (laughs)
4: I'm ready. You know what? And I just wanted to say, Rob, thanks for playing that, that during the break because that is one of my all-time favorite bands. There, so thanks a lot. Uh,
1: absolutely. I've I've actually been picking some of the music, and uh, Dan Galante has also been picking some of the uh, music. So it's we're having we're having fun in the studio tonight. Um, well, let's go to the wildcard line real quick. Fred, San Antonio, Texas. Welcome to the program. Thank you.
6: Good morning, guys. Good morning. <clears throat> I've right, Fred. And- Hey, Jan, I've really been intrigued while I've uh, listened uh, tonight and this morning. I've never heard anybody talk about the things you are here at length. And, uh, I come from a Christian family. Uh, I read a lot of the Bible when I was very young. Uh, and during my teens, I read a piece in Revelations that really stuck out in my mind. It, you're talking about all types of figurative references to the possibility of using drugs. And in Revelations 10, there is a very conspicuous uh, passage where, and, of course, Revelation is as as, uh, vivid, you know, it conjures as vivid images as I know of anywhere in the Bible. And uh, John, who is accredited with Acts, is encouraged to eat something that an angel hands him and it doesn't sound like a plant. They call it a book, which, you know, obviously in our times...
3: Yeah,
4: he, he's told to eat the scroll, correct? he eat this book, and
6: pretty much Revelation opens up, and him having this really vivid hallucination that he's told if it's going to mean something, write it down. And I'm just curious if you've studied this, because as I'm listening tonight, you, you, you re- have referred several times... Uh, way more in-depth than I'm, I can, you know, pull out of my mind from the Bible. But that one piece stuck in my mind, because it's like they jam it on him. Here, eat this paper, and you're going to see all kinds of things, and he does. And uh, I'm just curious if you have any reflections on having studied that. And if not, you might ought to take a look at it. It's Revelation 10:9, and it's, I mean, it, it's, sure. um, it, it just always ate at me.
8: Hmm. Wow, look at this.
4: So, yeah, so the the text Revelation ten nine says, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, "Take it and eat it. I will turn your stomach, it will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey and it's funny that you mention about uh, the book or the scroll and uh, having this psychedelic experience, and in fact, Fred, uh, a good friend of mine, Professor John Rush, who I mentioned earlier. He's written a a number of books on this subject. Uh, The first was his book, Failed God, but uh, uh, a book that he published January of this year is called The Mushroom in Christian Art. And, in fact, he argues in that book because he has found so many iconographic images of the book being a symbol to be eaten that he argues in that book that, in fact, the book or the scroll where it's named, like you mentioned, in Revelation – does in fact mean the mushroom and uh, i also mentioned jack hare earlier who was working on a book the most high uh before he suffered a heart attack and died in uh, april of uh, 2010 but in that book he had also broken down the entire book of revelation as a as explaining it as a psychedelic experience so uh you can you know you can follow up on john rush's uh citation there and see what you think about the evidence that he's got there. I think he published about 200 or 250 images on a DVD with that book.
1: Okay. Well, let's go west of the Rockies. Victor is driving a truck in Central California. Welcome, Victor.
4: Well, thank
5: you. got a couple of questions. Um, Back in the ancient days, were the mushrooms brought out on special religious days or holidays and ingesting the mushroom? are you aware of your
3: surroundings generally
1: speaking jan are you around yeah. are you around yeah you can you still are you don't go anywhere you're not slipping off to a dream world
4: well you know it's a, it's a, it entirely depends on which mushroom and in fact some of the mythology suggests that uh the blue and red mushrooms were taken together and in the Kabbalah, blue and red are opposing colors which uh would make it even more significant but uh I think that uh, on various holidays, where the word you know, which is derived from the word holy day, uh, like especially like Christmas, and I think possibly also Thanksgiving, there's a lot of of uh, evidence surrounding the mushroom and thanks and uh, Easter as well. But um, I think that it was primarily brought out on certain religious days. But um, as far as the mushrooms and knowing about your surroundings, it depends on the dosage. It depends on the type, Amanita muscaria. It's highly recommended that you never take them alone and that you only do them with the sitter because very much so it can, uh, you know, if you remember the story of uh, Jonah and the whale in the Bible, it takes you on this, it can take you on this hellacious uh, path down into, you know, the belly of the whale where you're going under, you know, in this underworld or whatever and you can feel miserable and then you come up and you feel enlightened in the greatest high ever. And, uh, it's you know it's a, it's it's a mushroom that very commonly and in fact you see in a lot of the christian iconography uh people will have eaten something and they're passed out cold with somebody looking over them and this is the amanita muscaria mushroom but the psilocybe mushrooms uh you tend to be uh you you can have an out of body experience while you're still awake with those mushrooms uh, much more so than with the Amanitas. Okay. And then, of course, mi- mixing them would have an entirely different effect altogether.
1: Yeah. All right, let's go east of the Rockies. Uh, Rebecca, West Philadelphia, welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
11: Hi, yeah. Um, I was just thinking, Jesus, gee, he's us, and yes, you, sure, yes, you are. And um, in terms of psychedelics and spiritual experience, I was wondering if it could help in the evolution of consciousness so that people could be more like Jesus. Um, Some friends of mine have been taking DMT, and a couple of them described an experience in which they were interrogated by interdimensional beings, and they said after they seemed to pass their test, they were guided by the beings to do certain things to help the world in the 2012 transition. And they kind of developed, like, Messiah complexes, but at the same time they went from being down and out and desperate to extremely successful and influential after... interaction and uh, years ago I made a movie called the infinite parallel it's about a time of crisis for the human race and the protagonist is afraid and doesn't know if things will be okay or what to do to make them okay and in her desperation she calls out to a higher power for help and um, as it turns out the higher power that answers appears to be aliens but they're actually humans from the future evolved with a different kind of consciousness that can transcend time and space so from our current perspective they help the human race for the future and they influence the events of a time that occurred before their existence. So my question is, is there any evidence or speculation that something can influence the present from the future, or is it possible that something beyond our direct perception can affect different periods of time at once with some kind of wave of influence?
4: Well, that's a very big question. Um, You know, the thing is, is with evidence, you always have to remember that – Unless you do have evidence coming in through your five senses that it's arguing the arbitrary and therefore you have to throw it out. If you can base it on evidence through the five senses, then you can build something on it or you can leave it open as a possibility that, you know, as something that needs more, uh, more information before you can make a decision on it. Uh, as far as evolution of consciousness, you know, this is something that you know Terence McKenna proposed. Um, uh, there's another uh, uh, researcher, and I'm forgetting the the name off the top of my head now. Uh, Peter, oh no, shoot, I'm forgetting the la- his last name right now. But he's in he's in France, and he's gone into the Corpus Colossum and entheogens for uh, e- evolution and consciousness. But what people have to realize, and Professor Marlene Dobkin de Rios has gone into this some in her work, and I've gone into this topic a lot in my work, is that entheogens or psychedelics can be used exceedingly well to mind control people who are open to fall into any new age or Fabian socialist-like trap, and they can be misguided into things that are non-solutions or or non-actions where they're ineffective. So. Having a systematic method of critical thinking, like the trivium and quadrivium, in place when you take these things, in my opinion, is essential to achieve a sort of evolution along with these things. But without them, they can be uh, without a systematic method of critical thinking and fact-checking and verifying information. It can be very dangerous because because people can be misled. There are the the Charles Manson's of the world who, and you know, the MK Ultra programs and things like that. Uh, where people want to use these substances for very nefarious reasons, and you always have to be careful and mindful of that stuff. And mind control works in a much different uh, fashion than most people realize it does. And somebody who's just not, uh, for instance, just not aware of logical fallacies, for instance, is very easy to mind control. So knowing logic and the logical fallacies and the trivium especially before you take these things is essential to work towards that evolution and prevent yourself from being controlled
1: yeah when you open up a gateway there's good and bad that can come through
4: exactly it's a double-edged sword and as good as as much good as these substances can do they can be equally as bad and in fact there's a, a whole level of of dark shamanism out there that's completely whitewashed in our society and that's Uh, something that people need to be very careful of.
1: Mm -hmm. First-time caller line, Ian from Corona, California. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Hi,
4: thanks for having me. Sure. Um, My question, I I was wondering about the uh, connection you were mentioning earlier with DMT and the psilocybin motion particularly, and wondering if there was a higher connection with the DMT and the pineal gland within the brain and whether there were, like, other drugs that had connections with particular parts of the brain and what the significance of that specifically was. Well, you would have to ask someone like Professor Dave Nichols at uh, University of Purdue to find out what the latest is. But as far as, like, DMT and the pineal gland, uh, you know, and I've talked with Rick Strassman plenty about this myself, but DMT in the pineal gland has never been proved. What has been proved is that DMT... Is found in the red blood cells in the lungs and in uh, the cerebral spinal fluid but it's never been proved at this point yet to be to have been found in the pineal gland but as Strassman himself admits it would make for a very tidy package however they are doing research right now to look into more uh, look more into that to see that uh, whether or not if they can prove that so you know, the the research is still out on that, and we don't have any positive conclusions. And I'm not a biochemist, so you, like I said, you'd have to talk to Dave Nichols.
1: Okay, we are cruising right along. Let's go international. Let's go to London, I'm assuming England. Uh, Jimmy, welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
8: Yes, I do, actually. An it's London, Ontario, Canada. Thank you. Um,
1: okay, okay. Thank Canada. You. Still international.
8: Still international. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I just want to make a very uh, uh, strong comment. Um, uh, uh, I appreciate uh, his his comments. I just wanted to know, uh, you said that you weren't too sure about a historical Jesus, but um, I just wanted to let you know that if you actually look throughout all the centuries, uh, people who historically existed, uh, John Wesley, Martin Luther, even Oral Roberts, right? These people were touched by the Lord. They were healed by the Lord. A lot of people were set free from drugs, alcohol, all that stuff throughout all the centuries. If you go to christiantestimonies.com, it'll prove that. And these people then all get together and just make it all up. Um, obviously, the church has a beginning, a history of somewhere. It has to right? It has to have a history and a beginning of somewhere. And it has to, it has to be
4: Jesus. What's your comment? Well, I don't think that it has to be Jesus. I think that you believe that it has to be Jesus, but I think that when we get into, you know, remove, detaching our beliefs and, you know, our emotional ties to these things and looking at them, you know, more openly uh, will allow other beginnings in like archaeoastronomy, like entheogens. And, in fact, there's a very good book by a uh, the former head of the uh, chaplain staff at uh, Cornell University, a guy by the name of uh, Ernest Werner, who wrote a book called The Rod of Jesse that goes into this very topic that you're talking about. And I mentioned earlier in the show that, you know, there is a an experience aspect of, the, of what is Jesus. And I think if you study this book, The Rod of Jesse, by Ernest Werner, you'll have a much clearer understanding of how, it's possible that these people could have this experience while simultaneously and Ernest Werner as a former head of the church goes through painstakingly line by line through all of the evidence of a historical Jesus and finds out whether or not these arguments are are able to be substantiated or not. So if we remove the logical fallacies and we just look at the information line by line as, as Ernest Warner does as a former, like I said, former head of the church, we can go in there and see what the texts mean and how they can guide us to a spiritual or religious-type experience and not be based on a historical person.
1: Okay, let's go to the wild card line. Author in Ashton, Colorado, welcome to Coast to Coast AM.
7: Hi, uh, Rob, and and happy New Year to uh, you and Dr. Irwin.
3: Thanks.
1: Same I've you. been
7: listening to Coast to Coast for so long and never called, uh, Doctor. I'm a I'm a I'm a child of the '60s, so you know, 30 years ago or so, I had my own religious experiences, and of course, moving to Aspen, which was the Western Mushroom Capital of the United States, I think sometimes. But as many religious experiences as I had, I also had the the paranoia part, which goes to the raves and and separating between a. a what would you call it—a religious experience and a and a and recreational use? Um, I, it just seems odd that when you when you talked about the the sword, the shroud of Turin, and the sword of of Charlemagne, looking for that, when and you were talking about until we have proof, scientific proof, aren't there two sides to this? Isn't the experience that you have, if you would take a psychedelic drug? And look at the shroud of Turin, and be led to some enlightenment. I don't, I'm trying to see whether proof is involved between the two. Maybe we'll never prove the shroud, and maybe we'll never exactly prove how how mushrooms lead you to your own individual enlightenment without a being in a in a temple in a country that people at a rave will never get a chance to go to.
1: Good point. Can well, you can you tackle that in less than a minute?
4: Uh, sure. Well. You know, as far as, you know, raves and recreational use and things like that, what we have to be aware of, you know, are these are these experiences real versus like the Shroud of Torin and things like that? What I was saying earlier is that the onus of proof is on whoever is presenting that as evidence. But with the experience with the mushrooms being spiritual or whatever, we can take data in via our five senses and experience these things. And not only that, I mentioned earlier uh, the study perform- studies performed by uh, Professor Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University that have proved th- actually the religious experience with the mushrooms. So, you know, there is a difference between having five cents data and taking for granted a shroud that's been passed down for many centuries and we're told to believe that it came from this person uh, without any evidence. And, in fact, there's evidence of many shrouds being passed around in ancient times.
1: Well... I like that definitive, if albeit still mysterious answer. Well, we're just out of time. I want to thank Jan Irvin for coming on the program and showing us a little bit about his, his research in the Gnostic text. And I would thank everyone for listening to Coast to Coast AM. I hope everyone has a wonderful new year. And we'll see you next time right here on Coast to Coast
3: AM.